You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Well, hey there, all you triathlon studs and studettes. This is Coach Brett with Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where we go long on endurance and learn a lot about ourselves along the way. In this episode, we do the triathlon news. We do a short interview with the founder and owner of Orange Mud, who makes all kinds of really cool endurance gear. But the icing on the cake is it's Thanksgiving weekend, which gives us a four-day weekend. And we didn't go anywhere, so that gave me plenty of time to do a mega training block. And I go in it in detail. And one of the days, I do a five-hour bike ride with the previous episode's interviewee and elite mountain biker that's like a rocket ship on a bike. And I try to keep up. Uh, Kai Blankner, my son. And it's it's an impressive block of work because... I normally would not have done so much of this of the biking and running combined together. I would have mixed in a swim, but the pool was closed on Friday for the long Thanksgiving break. It was just closed from yeah Thursday on. So all I got is biking and running. So I've got training log for you of where I just pile on the miles and you get to see the strategy and the nutrition and the recovery. I go into detail about that and how it makes you feel to be able to execute it. And then, you know, on day three of this thing, I've got a terrifying ride with Kai <laughs> that I'm very worried about that I'm going <laughs> to, how am I going to do this? Because on Thursday, I start off with a pretty long run for me, 11.4. I cut it a little bit short of instead of doing like 13 because it was the middle of the week and I usually save that for the weekend. And then the very next day, was the day that I'd planned to go for my long bike ride with Kai, five hours, right? And that's also why I cut the run a little bit short. Well, I woke up on Friday morning, the day that we were supposed to ride together, and Kai had talked with his coach and arranged with his coach to switch his long ride day to Saturday. And I did not find out about this until I'd already like gotten all my stuff together and I thought out a route and I had all this gear ready to do five hours and fuel and everything. And I had the time and I was like, oh man. And I could have cut it short and done a shorter ride. But then once I got going, you know, I was like, no, I'm going to do the full five hours. And I did almost five hours. It was like four hours and 45 minutes. And then I'm like really freaked out because I still am going to do this ride with Kai five hours the next day, you know, sandwiched on top of this. So back to back five hour days after an 11 mile run the day before that. And I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And so I go into the training log detail about what I did for recovery and nutrition to be able to execute this and keep up with them. And I, and I'm going to go ahead and spoil it for you. I did. In fact, I did so well that I wanted to keep going and he was ready to be done at the end of our five hour ride. And then the next day, I went and ran a half marathon. And so in the training log, I talk about that, how it makes you feel to be able to execute something like that, to be so on top of your game and so fit and such an endurance performer that being able to do that is like so rare amongst normal people. For me, it was like really, really cool. And the reason I still did that five-hour ride on day three, whatever, this, the back-to-back five-hour ride with Kai was... 
I was just like, dude, how many rides am I going to get with Kai like this? You know, he might move off across the country somewhere in a few few years. Uh, I don't know. So I was like, I can't not go. I'm going to go ahead and do this. And I'd already planned out this super cool route with him. And I did not do that on my first ride. I saved it for the second ride. Uh, and he wouldn't be familiar with it. And I was. And I didn't want him. I want him to have a great ride and, and uh, be able to navigate around. And without me being somewhere in the area, he'd get turned around out there. And also it was going to be so remote because it was a really far out and back that you really want two people when you go that far. And so all those things combined together, I was like, man, I'm going to do it. So I overcame my fear, applied all my knowledge and technique and tactics and executed it and did it. It was awesome. So that's all in the training log. And I share the details with you so that you can do this kind of stuff yourself. And also, this is the last big training weekend. I really shouldn't have done this much. But I've got a race coming up next weekend, so I've got a taper for that. So it was okay to do a bunch because all next week I'm going to back off to get ready for a race on Saturday, a marathon mountain bike race, which will be in the next episode. It has not happened yet, but that's going to be a really great podcast event because marathon mountain biking is nuts. And after doing what I did the past four days, I'm definitely in good enough shape to finish that race and do pretty good, relatively speaking, for myself. And don't want to go too much further without mentioning that if you want coaching to achieve your goals, I have a couple spots open. We use Training Peaks, the industry standard. I build you custom training plans. It's only $1.99 a month, and you get to work with yours truly with all the techniques and methods and tricks and hacks with gear and strategy accumulated over 20 years of triathlon racing and ultra marathoning, marathon swimming, <laughs> marathon mountain biking. <laughs> for you to achieve your goals and turn you into the endurance monster that you want to be. All right, all you have to do is send an email to texafornia at gmail.com with coaching in the subject line and we'll get you set up. Okay, let's go ahead and get started on triathlon news. But I wanna mention that also I had a bit of an epiphany when I was recording my podcast about a strategy that will help me get episodes out more frequently. And frequency... Just like training, consistency, frequency, volume is the key to success. And I do, not, I do not know why it did not come to me before. What I've always done is record the training log as I go along. And then at the very end, as I'm putting the show together, I record this bit of triathlon news. And I've been accumulating the news throughout the week. And then I read them off all in one blog. But the problem is if, if you all were to witness the podcast making process, that's actually kind of a, a hindrance to getting it done. It's hard to explain why, but it's easier just to record stuff and start making a show first. And then as you're making the show, you've got momentum, right? And the hard part about making a show is sitting down and doing the editing of the audio. But once you start, actually, you don't want to stop. It's kind of like running. And once I start editing audio for a show, man, I'm, I'm done with putting a show out in about two, three days because I don't like to leave it unfinished. So the idea that I came up with, my epiphany, was I'm just going to start recording my training log. And as the news happens, I will record that in my training log. And what I do is when I'm recording audio for, you know, throughout the week of training or two weeks of training, I end up with multiple recordings, right? Well, I can go ahead and start putting one of those recordings into a show and start editing it into a new show. And basically, a show is a bunch of different tracks, 
So I've got like the intro track, the intro music track, and then I've got like a track for the news, and then a track for like an interview, the intro and outro music for the interview, and then the intro music for the training log, and then the training log, and then the outro, and then the outro music. So instead of waiting for the training log to be over and then to start and to record the news, the idea is just to record the news straight into all my other audio that I record. And since they're naturally split up into different tracks anyway, because just for safety's sake, you don't want everything on one track and for it to get deleted by accident, I end up with like five to seven audio files of just out recording stuff to make up one show. Well, I can start dumping them into a new show and start editing the show. And as I'm editing the show, pluck out the audio of the news and put that, you can copy and paste or cut and paste and then drop that into its own track, all the news sequentially into the, into the news portion of the show. And bang, I'm making a show right from the beginning. I can record the news as it happens, as I think about it. And you get my like real reaction to it in time. And then when I'm done recording at the end of the week, I'm done recording a show and I don't have to go back and record more stuff to add in later. It just, it's a real demotivator to kind of have to go do that and try to keep track of all these pieces because I like to do this show not about me. It's about triathlon. It's about my experience doing triathlon, but it's not about me per se. It's just my experience of doing it. So it's more about what is triathlon and how does it affect somebody like me and how to do it well and all my tips and tricks along the way. But I don't have the ego trip of the show. I don't need the show to be about me. So it's designed on purpose that once you're done with hearing me talk about myself doing stuff, you can just you can just turn it off and move on to something else. It's designed like that on purpose. It, editing my, audio, my own audio, I don't want to hear myself after a while. So see, if you can tell, I'm sure you will be able to, that the audio for the news has been plucked from different places throughout the week. You'll have diff different atmospheric sounds because I'll be in a room or I'll be outside or I'll be in my car or something like that while recording. All right. Okay. We're going to keep rolling with this style for a little bit. I'll give it the old college try. See if it sticks. You never know. Sometimes weird stuff is kind of cool. I mean, that's the way triathlon started out, right? A bar bet. What's the dumbest combination of sports that we can possibly string together? <laughs> and who would actually be good at that? All right. Next, we have an interview with Josh Sprague. And this was recorded at the Austin Rattler. And I was so excited to run into him because I actually interviewed with him a long time ago. And he had come up with some innovative products for Orange Mud. And compared to now, how much stuff they had, I went to their website. Oh my gosh, they have so much stuff. And they had a table set up with a whole bunch of items for the pre-race like package pickup the day before. And they had some of the classic stuff and then some a ton of new things. Orange Mud is this company that makes hydration backpacks, bottle handheld bottle carriers, frame bags, bento boxes, all kinds of super cool stuff. And they make it like really, really durable. So if you buy something that's Orange Mud, it's going to almost last forever. And the guy really, really knows how to build great products. So this is our interview together. Welcome back to the show, Josh Sprague. Uh, we moved our business down here and uh, man, it's awesome. Yeah. It's warm. It's freezing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> we love all right. I'm here with Josh from Orange Mud. Howdy, howdy. And you're a recurring guest. I am. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for having me uh, again. Yeah. So uh, we talked a while back and uh, you sent me, um, do you still make those towels? Yep. 
Okay. These, now in waterproof. The orange mud towels are just incredible because they zip into like a hood. Yep. Sounds along like with the, uh, the strap to yep. around your waist for changing. Exactly. Yeah. And so I saw your stuff here and it was immediately like, oh, yeah, this is this guy that wasn't with y'all was walking around. I was about to tell him this is like really high quality stuff. Yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah we, we've been, uh, we started in January 2012. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. How many uh, years we've been in business now, and then it just keeps growing. So, and, yeah, we're in mountain bike, triathlon, trail run, everything. Yeah, and, and so, and that's what we do. That's what I do. And uh, my son's racing. He's trying to qualify for uh, Leadville tomorrow. Nice. Uh, 29 and under. Yeah, good luck. <laughs> it's going to be hard. And then, um, yeah, so now you've got, like, full running packs with the, with the bladders in them. Yeah. Yeah, so our, this is what's called our endurance pack. It's actually evolved to be our number one pack, and yeah. it is awesome for Ironman. At Ironman Expos, it's our number one pack. It, really? Trail okay. and ultra running, it's our number one pack. And yeah. endurance mountain biking, gravel biking, it's our number one pack. Yeah. Uh, two liters, 70 ounces, holds all your crap. Uh, plus, you know, big phones and bags of pickles and peaches and blueberries and guacamole, whatever weird stuff you want to put in there. Yeah. Which one? Are they all pretty good in the heat, or is there one that's all, better than... all fantastic. Than Everything that we do, we don't put foam in any of our packs, which a lot of times foam is what's trapping heat. And then with all of our packs, they're all short in footprint, and that footprint uh, is really what translates to a lot of heat on people's bodies. Uh, you're right, yeah. They're kind of like a... Like a Back in the 80s, like a cutoff shirt. Yeah. yeah. So your midriff is exposed, right? Yeah. They don't go down too far. Yeah, and that keeps you cooler. That's our new marketing strategy. We make hydration packs to keep your midriff exposed. (laughs) I like like this idea. I like that. (laughs) Yeah. And then uh, you said that you moved down here from Colorado recently? We did, yeah. Well, it's been four years now. Um, But, yeah, we moved here in June of 19, and uh, we were sick of the heat. Or sick of the cold, sorry. And uh, and sick of... um, Emily, look at the blue one. The lack of mosquitoes, you know? No, that's not true at all. But it's just actually the cold we we didn't enjoy as much. So, yeah, we we moved to Texas, and we're down here in the Austin area and love every bit. Emily, come back. Do you remember all the orange mud stuff that we've got? It's Josh. No, yeah. I was not sponsored. <laughs> I, what? Okay. Yeah, I did an interview with them, and then I just asked about yeah, that. the towels. Yeah. Like they make those towels, and remember, this is I was trying this yeah. back on again the other day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This looks very familiar. That's called the double barrel, right? A uh, VP two. Okay. This bottle. We, I think I brought. Oh, it. I'm still using that. Yeah. There you go. That's, That's a high quality. Bottle. Perfect. Okay, you're getting free commercial. That's right what here. I like yeah. to hear. And you're here. You're here in Austin. Yep. Yeah, we awesome. uh, we love sponsoring the local events, and we don't come out as much as we want but uh there's so many around the country anymore but but the rather we're huge fans of uh, lifetimes events and and yeah rather pulls in about a thousand people out here between run and ride and it's right here in our backyard so we thought we'd come out and say hi all right okay well i'm gonna give them a shout give you all a shout out anytime tomorrow much appreciated yeah okay well awesome thank you so much it's awesome running into you again (laughs) it's awesome yeah it's It's been too long yeah all right well thanks yes sir appreciate it all right thank you so much josh if you like that interview, if you go to Orange Mud's website and check them out and you like their stuff, make sure you say that uh, Zen in the Art of Triathlon, you can just say Zen Try. Brett from Zen Try sent you. You heard him on Zen Try. And let's keep that relationship going with him. I really like that guy. And the, the gear is just unbelievably high quality. Okay, and with that, let's get into the training log. This is my big training week capped off with a ride with a cyclist that's much faster than I am. So how do I do it? How do I make it through a five-hour ride with this kid on the back of blasting my legs already the two days previous with an 11-mile run and a five-hour bike ride the day before? (laughs) 
I knew I was in trouble. So I detailed that in the training log, like how I, how I executed it is awesome. And one last thing is I wanted to mention that it is very interesting how you can have two totally different types of cyclists. You can have two such different levels of cyclists. Both are really great, but in their own different ways. And by that, I mean is Kai can absolutely smoke me in something that's short to medium and even kind of long, I guess. But he also did, I think, nothing the day before our five-hour ride and then nothing the day after our five-hour ride together. And his five-hour ride, he was pretty much done at the end of it. He wanted it to be over, and I, I was willing to keep going. And then the day after that, I was out there running a half marathon on my own just for fun. And you know, that's kind of what you want. At his races, they're anywhere from an hour to four hours long is pretty much the, the end of the, of the spectrum there, unless something's unusually long. And that's where he excels. And the stuff I like to do is... 10 hours. Well, I just find I'm just not tired at 10 hours. I can keep going. And then back-to-back days of just doing that kind of thing. So there's two types of success and two types of fast. There's three types of fast. There's super short sprint fast. And then there's this medium distance fast, which Kai is. And then there's ultra endurance fast, which usually isn't even fast. It's just the fact that you don't get tired and you can keep going. So I couldn't be happier that we're both in great places in respect to our different sports. And we got to have this overlapping Venn diagram for one day where we got a five-hour ride in together where that was his training schedule and it was mine. And it ended, up, it ended up being just great. So let's go ahead and get started with that. And if you start thinking, man, I want to be able to do what Coach Brett is able to do, then I'll mention how to sign up for coaching again at the end of the episode, okay? Here we go with the famously infamous training log. Let's rock. You are entering the Zenfrite training log zone. Hi everybody, my name is Brett, I'm a triathlete. I decided it's time I got some friends more suited to my status. But Joe, we've been friends for years! Hey, we all make mistakes. Come on dudes, let's go exercise! Exercise! Yeah! I'm gonna do sit-ups till I poop myself! All right, leaving the pool Monday morning. Boy, that swim workout was going to be hard. <laughs> but you don't have to go hard. You can choose. So I could tell just starting off that my shoulders were sore. Hey, bird. And also what I coach and train is for people to make sure that their first 10 minutes or so is kind of like a warm-up set. You just go at the pace, you know, like a normal pace you would. But you can tell if your times are slow. So yeah, you do a recurring one, you know, one that's repeatable. If your times are slow, hold on, I'm putting stuff in the truck. <clears throat> then something's off and you probably need a little bit of recovery. You could not swim at all or run or bike. This works for every sport. And maybe it's a day to even, you know, cash it all in. But you know, by the time you get to the pool, the pool can be therapy. So, unlike running, I would say swimming and biking, you can just go easy and help get blood flow to your legs or your arms and make sure my goggles are turned off. That's something you didn't used to hear. And if you do it right, it can actually aid in recovery, make you feel good. And it's a better use of your time since you just spent all that time getting on the bike in the first place. 
or in the pool. I would say running, you could just turn around and cash it in. <laughs> Be like, okay, that's today's not the day. Oh my gosh, how much crap do I have to get in the back of my truck? I need to clean out the back of my truck. Ugh. And the reason I'm sore is a pretty good reason. I had kind of an epic workout weekend. Oh my gosh. Hold on, still putting stuff away in my car. <clears throat> All right. I had kind of an epic workout weekend where um, Emily was out of town doing a, a, a daughter-dad trip with her dad, which is real sweet. And, you know, Kai's off at college, so I'm here all by myself. And uh, Wednesday, I had to do stuff on the Texas A&M campus all day, give a presentation about work. And Thursday, I had to drive to Dallas. Well, I went Wednesday night and hung out with one of my best friends from military school, which was so cool. And I'll get to that later. How he's uh, really just become a, a really down to earth and centered person. And we got so much in common on that. We've always had a lot in common because of where we went to school. But it was just really nice to hang out with somebody that's uh, become Zen all in his own way. And you could tell like really changed him. It's amazing. I haven't seen him in about five years, I think. And then I had a work i wouldn't call it training it was more like seminars in dallas at the microsoft headquarters and it happened to be in their artificial intelligence lab which is pretty cool hold on i'm trying to find the charging cable for my goggles <laughs> such a weird thing to say but man they told me right off the bat that i was swimming slow today and to back it off so there is value there is value so basically i missed about two days of working out oh on the way back from dallas I stopped and saw a coworker I hadn't seen in a long time, about five years there too. And she and I had coffee at a big coffee bar kind of place. And I only had like an hour, hour and a half because I needed to get on the road and drive back to College Station. And traffic was gonna be murder getting out of Dallas. And it was, but it was worth it. And then by the time I got home at night, the next morning, you know, I'm too tired to go swim. So I didn't swim, but then I ran uh, Friday night. So that was cool. So then I guess my point is, because I missed a couple days late in the week, which I was fine with, I take those as an opportunity to rest. I just train all the time. And then when something pops up where I can't train, then I use those as rest days. And it's nice because I need them and it doesn't bother me so much. But then trying to get back on it Saturday and Sunday, well, Friday night, right? A run like seven something miles with river and then turning right around in the morning, and then biking 76 miles with about, I'd say 30% of it, 40% of it gravel. And I was able to do, it was almost five hours. It was probably five hours, including like stopping time for water and stuff. And on purpose, because I've got a mountain bike race coming up and I haven't mountain biked much lately. I, on purpose, uh, rode rougher stuff with my hands on the hoods, getting banged up pretty good where normally I would like be in the aero position or in comfort bars or kind of seek out smoother surfaces. Because when you're doing a four hour mountain bike race, your hands start to get beat up if you're not used to it. But I didn't get started until late, like say 10, 30, 11 o'clock in the morning because I was trying to fix this stupid valve leak and I put a picture of it on Instagram Zen Triathlon on Instagram. It was leaking out of the top of the rim hole valve spot. And that meant that there's a hole somewhere in the rim, like against the tire, 
and it was leaking into the rim and the and its favorite place to come out was the rim hole you know closest to the uh, to the handlebars not the rim hole facing the tire and it's a real odd place and after dude seriously like earlier last week i was fiddling with it off and on trying to patch the hole but or trying to figure out what was leaking and trying the different valves and all kinds of stuff and then i finally figured out that it's probably a hole in the rim tape my fingers were sore for screwing and unscrewing valve lock rings but what was really annoying was this was the perfect weekend to get in a long long bike ride and i needed one because my last race a time for this race coming up in two weeks and two weeks out is the time to do your big volume that's your last chance was four hours and 45 minutes or so and so I need a four hour and a half, (laughs) possibly five hour bike ride so that I'm up to par with how long it's going to be. And I've got this unreliable front tire that's going to leak and Emily's out of town and the triathlon and long distance cycling community of ultra people is kind of sparse in College Station. So I'd have to think and really put somebody out of their way to come get me if I get stuck out there with a flat tire. So Friday night, I decided I'm going to pull that tire off Saturday morning and really look at it. I was going to try a few more times and then I was going to pull the tire off and then really look at it and decide if I needed to put in a new rim tape. I was going to have to find rim tape somewhere in the garage. And after about an hour of trying little things on Saturday morning and different lock ring and a rubber stopper, bungs on the on the uh, valve i finally said yeah look i'm looking at a cut on my finger right now from doing that stupid thing i said okay i'm pulling the tire off and looking at the rim pulled the tire off looked at the rim after scrubbing it and clearing away old sealant found a hole in the rim tape and i also found some rim tape but i was like man i don't want to use rim tape a whole new thing of rim tape when i just need to patch one little hole so i cut a piece of gorilla tape and put it over the the hole, put the tar back on, blasted it on, and it worked. So now I was most likely not gonna need somebody to come out and get me on my super long bike ride. And I didn't, and I had a really good bike ride. The first half of it, I worked the hills pretty hard and I was gonna kind of do that the whole ride. And then halfway in, I was like, nah, (laughs) that's enough. I could tell I'm done. Oh, weather was perfect. Like everything was just perfect. And it was so nice came home, piddled around a little bit, tried to neaten stuff up, woke up the next morning, and this was going to be my long run day, which for mountain biking is also not a uh, bad sport to do, because sometimes you got to push your bike uphill because you're stuck or it's so steep. And the temperatures are pretty good, and I did my thing I've been doing lately is a two-mile loop and I take River, my dog, for the first half because he's kind of done by then. They get overheated. And after that uh, first half, dropped him off, reloaded on water, and went out for another second half. And it ended up being 14 miles. And I'm running with a uh, water bladder backpack kind of thing. And then it, it kind of cooked me the rest of the day. Well, I took a nap and then Emily came home and it was her and her dad and there's all kinds of commotion and I got to the car and help him move stuff. And I had to sit down and this hat, this has been happening to me since COVID where I feel like I don't get the oxygen uptake 
that I used to. And I had COVID about, I think, three times total. And one time it really got my lungs pretty good. I think the first time I went back to training too soon and had a little bit of a relapse. And there's been a lot of stuff lately I've noticed where triathletes, endurance athletes, are actually low on iron and iron transports oxygen. And I told Emily, Emily being a nurse, I said, hey, I need some iron and yeah, let's find some. And we did. <laughs> she said, oh, I bought you a men's multivitamin, you know, men's one a day or whatever it's called. And we looked at it, it has no iron in it. But women's one a day does. It has 100% of your daily uh, dose of iron. And I'm pretty sure that's because with menstruation, women lose blood and then that's a loss of iron right there. That's why blood's red oxidation of, of iron and so i took a women's uh, iron multivitamin this morning <laughs> well a multivitamin with iron and we'll see how that works out all right gotta go in the office later bang all right we are back it is tuesday morning week of thanksgiving i just remembered something while i'm driving it's listening to the trainer trainer road podcast and they said something really interesting a question that really opens up a lot of doors if you are going to do strength training, it shows that you do it after easy rides, like 65% effort, easy rides. And that actually increases your endurance. So how would you do this? Uh, let's say in the weight room, obviously you go do like squats and, and um, quad machine and whatever you want to do, uh, bench and pull downs and whatever for swimming. Anyway, calf raises for running. So yeah, you could do your easy bike ride and then go do that, right? But you could also finish off your easy bike ride by doing some hard hills like in low uh, cadence RPM. Ah, that would be really cool. That, that, that simulates like weight room work. Be pretty cool. And then, oh, my voice bits right there. And then the other thing was... I rode easy, no, I rode hill work <laughs> on the trainer this morning. It's very interesting. Uh, I've got a strain, like I said, in my uh, hamstring. And I'm trying to figure out, you know, what caused it. Was it doing a little bit more hard work on the tri-bike and the arrow position on the trainer? Because that position is slammed versus my arrow bars on my gravel bike. And... Yeah, I've got a race coming up, so I need to do hill work and mix it in. So I've got a perfect route, I think I'll mention on the next little part of the podcast. But I got to go into W to the ERK. Got my bike ride in this morning. Going to run tonight. Things are looking good. Oh, I brought a whole bunch of my training stuff, like how to make fuel and how to carry fuel and water to work. Because there's a guy that wants to start doing uh, marathons. And he has no idea, like how to make your own fuel, how to carry it. Uh, you know, when you tell him you need to drink water with a gel, like he didn't even know what a gel really was, sort of, you know, just kind of seen him. And then also how much uh, water I told him, dude, you, you got to drink like 10 ounces of water or something with a gel. It's like, what? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, how do I do that? And I'm like, dude, it's complicated, but it's awesome once you figure it out. So I gotta, I'm going to do that today too. I'll come back and tell you all how that went. All right, out bang. All right, we are back. I wanted to talk for a minute about the coastal highway route and how I have figured out a really good way to turn it into a 
one hour workout. So, you know, during the week, that's a great time to do your one hour workouts, save your long ride for the weekend. If you're a typical age grouper with that kind of lifestyle setup. So when they released this section, it's in Watopia, it's on Zwift. They advertised it as this like big, long section. I think it's like nine miles each way that's added in. Maybe, no, I think it's actually more than that. But anyway, let's say it's 11 miles. Anyway, it's kind of gentle rolling with a little bit of climbs kind of here and there. And it's coastline and it's got some random stuff, a little bit of what seems like Norway and then Pacific Northwest and uh, Aztec or Mayan uh, cities, like one abandoned and one modern. It's pretty cool. And what I found funny was immediately the hate comments because you can't ever do anything nice without people commenting terribly on it with uh about how oh we need more mountains we need more mountains mountains mountain mountains we need more climbs and, and it's like no dude and i my com i commented somewhere on something i don't remember what but i got a bunch of thumbs up on this i said no we need more level flattish but not dead flat like that uh, desert and the desert's boring and oppressive anyway you see like gentle rolling because there's other people in Zwift besides just cyclists that are kind of like newbie or rare cyclists now that does make up the majority of cyclists people that bike like a couple times a week and they're not really that serious it's kind of a hobby you know but there's a lot of people that use Zwift for real training and if it's going to be anybody it's going to be triathletes my friend was my friend Gary that we did the cold dunk with uh, mentioned that that triathletes are training and they have specific workouts they want to do and good training you separate your hills from your flats and so you need days where it's just easy and casual rolling and if there's a mountain every three minutes or big steep climbs, huge hills, which is, you know, you don't get your, you don't get in the nice level, easy training that you need to get in. But, you know, it's what draws people in because they're like, oh, wow, another climb. Yay. You know, but then that's also how people never get better is they go too hard all the time. And that's a great way to go too hard is to throw in hills and then have people from all over the world riding around you. So anyway, rant over this section of of highway is a long stretch of gentle rolling and scenic so it's perfect now it's nowhere near long enough but it's something and then the location of it is really interesting a lot of people said they didn't like it because it's at the it's at the ass end of two things that people aren't huge fans of universally one is the jungle world it's at the back end of that the very far downhill and apparently a lot of people don't like that because it's gravel ish and you know, roadies don't want to mix gravel in with their rides because it slows down their overall average times, <laughs> which is kind of funny. And then the other one is um, the back end of uh, desert flats. And, you know, the desert flats are dead flat. I find the terrain not uh, inspirational. I mean, it's, it's pretty and stuff, you know, the mountain ranges and all that, whatever around it, the big hills, but just... It's not lush. It's not comforting. It's not someplace I want to spend. It gives me like anxiety to be in the desert like that, I guess, as opposed to like, you know, forest and pretty and lush. Maybe it's my German heritage. And I like the black forest, you know, because jungle I'm kind of like indifferent on actually.
think I'm going to get trench foot or something if I step off the bike. But anyway, I've ridden it a bunch of times and I've figured out some really good training routes using this coastal highway and I wanted to share them with you. So we'll do the jungle route first where you start off at the jungle and then catch it from the bottom of there. What's interesting about that is you have to remember that if you're a high volume athlete, uh, cyclist, or if you are a regular triathlete, so you're running and biking a lot, your legs are always kind of a little bit tired. And also you're pressed for time. We don't have time for tons of warm up and, you know, as separate from your workout, you need to, the most economical thing I've learned over time is the way to get successful in triathlon is to be time efficient. And the way to be time efficient with riding on the trainer or riding outside is you make the first part of your ride really easy and then your warm-up is built into your ride and then you're not fiddling with like keeping stuff separate you know it's just a natural thing and also your legs are probably a little bit sore because you just ran the night before or biked hard the day before so if you go into zwift and pick the sugar cookie route that will start you at the top of the huge hill that's halfway up a mountain and point you downhill so you ride for like eight to ten minutes downhill in the jungle world uh, before you actually start having the pedal hard and even then it kind of just levels out and this is wonderful so when i get on my bike trainer i can hop on get started like really quickly and then pedal easy. And then as I'm organizing all my crap around me, like my headbands, my wristbands to keep sweat off my bike. And also like on YouTube off to the side, which screen I'm gonna be, you know, what video I'm gonna be watching and plugging this in and oh, my heart rate didn't pair right. And da -da -da, where's my, oh, my water bottle over here, not over there. And it's all built into the you're, you're just kind of riding easy downhill so you can coast a little bit here and there. You're not going to come to a dead stop going uphill like a lot of Zwift courses start off as. And it turns out it's just wonderful. Like you're just pedaling along and it's actually gravel. So you're not like making like crazy time that you would look at like artificially, like it really inflated your, your speed. It's just kind of casual. And I've just found it's like wonderful. It's a great way to start off a ride is the first eight to 10 minutes. It's just kind of nice downhill and you pedal when you want. And then, yeah, you're fixing and adjusting stuff and can coast a little bit and you're not going to come to a dead stop. So it's, oh, it's so great. It is the right way to start off a ride every single time. And then it gets on the coastal highway and it does that, uh, about until you get about 40 minutes in. Now you have to remember everything's relative, right? Uh, my speed, uh, versus your speed versus, uh, it's also, there's that, you know, the power you're putting out and then also what bike you're on and what kind of wheels you're running. So when I say, you know, time, you kind of have to take that uh, with a grain of salt. Uh, you could be riding, I'm typically on a tri bike with no draft. You could be riding with a group and then uh, covering ground even faster. But sugar cookie comes up to the desert and then it, you have a choice when you get to the desert at about 40 something minutes in and it wants to take you left, but let's say that you're just like, man, I am not having a great day. I want to do my hour ride, but uh, I just don't want to pedal that hard. I don't want to do hills anymore. Well, you could take a right and stay in the desert and it's dead flat for another 20 minutes easily. And then even after that, it starts to point just a slight bit downhill. 
and there, there's your hour ride. What a great workout, right? A nice, easy roll in, a little bit of, you know, I'm talking like 2% grades, <laughs> kind of here and there, and coasting mixed in. And then you got your nice little uh, uh, smooth finish, and you've basically done an easy ride, and no worries about having gone too hard, and kind of keep going with your recovery a little bit. Now, if you go left, <clears throat> like it wants you to, the other choice is you're like, man, I want to add in some hills at the very end to make this uh, kind of like a eight out of 10, you know, get some, get some hill work intervals in towards the end. And you can tell by that point in the ride, whether it's a good idea or not. You can tell if your legs are just too sore, you got the energy for it. If you want to do it, you feel it, then you know it's a good time to do it. So at that, when you take a left, when you get to the desert, it does a slow climb uphill. And then you have a choice where you can go left and it might say calm. I'm not sure what it's, what it's called, but anyway, uh, instead you take a right and go into Titan's Grove and Titan's Grove is this prehistoric world of sequoia forest and dinosaurs and grizzly bears. Um, it's just weird in there. I think it's modeled after Yellowstone or Yosemite park or maybe both. And it's funky in there and it's entertaining and it's got a bunch of punchy climbs and a, and a couple of longer climbs. Like one of them six something minutes long, seven minutes long. And it's a great way to finish out a ride with some punchiness, you know. And I've got this mountain bike race coming up. And so I've done that one twice the past uh, indoor trainer rides, two of them, uh, because I need that punchiness for mountain bike. Mountain bike, you coast and then you punch hard and you coast and you punch hard to get up and over stuff. And so I've been doing that. And then... By the time you get to the end of that forest, you won't get to the end of the forest, uh, but you'll get close within an hour. That's nice. And then the other way is if you start in the desert and then go down the coastal highway and then come out in the jungle. Now, this one's interesting. This is if you want a nice warm up and then you want to finish your one hour ride with a long climb with just long sustained hills. So that one, the course you pick instead of sugar cookie, you pick tempest fugit i think which is either latin or spanish for hot fire i think or what is tempest like time something anyway it's tempest fugit and then when you start off on that one right from the beginning it's not an easy downhill but it's not hard uphill either it's still okay as a triathlete you're, it's it's level it's flat and you're like okay this is nice and then you got a nice flat uh, ride for maybe it's like 15 minutes or so and then it hits the coastal highway and then that's rolling. So now you've now you've built up into some rolling. And then at about 40, 45 minutes in, you're at the bottom of the jungle. And you could go left or you could go right. But both of those go up for a long time, like 20 minutes or so, I think, if you wanted to just keep going up and up and up. And it's got a crossover that you can kind of do a figure eight or maybe loop back shorter if you want that crosses over the middle of the jungle. It gives you some options, you know, which is kind of nice. Just like going the other direction, if you want to do, end up doing desert or the, the Titan Forest, Titan's Grove, you can do, uh, this one gives you options in the jungle. You could do, you know, this climb or that climb, but you're going to go up and sustained, you know, for long periods of time, which is maybe that's the workout that you need, you know. Uh, you want to do basically a 10 out of 10 <laughs> climbing ride. And also, like we talked about previously, finishing your workout with doing the hard stuff at the end uh, does uh, seems to improve your endurance better than doing the hard stuff up front. Anyway, also on that, if you go left and climb on the left side of the jungle is Alp Duez or Alp du Zwift. And that thing is a monster climb. 
We're talking an hour, hour plus, easy for most people to climb that thing. So you could do intervals up that. You know, when, when I do Alpe d'Huez, Alpe du Zwift intervals, I typically start at the top of the jungle, ride downhill about 10 minutes, and then take a right on that thing. And I'll do like a two-minute interval and then coast back downhill and then do a three-minute interval, coast back downhill, do a four-minute interval, coast back downhill, five-minute interval, coast back downhill. And so I'm, I'm doing like progressive intervals almost to failure. Um, but what's cool about doing Alpe d'Huez or Alpe du Zwift is on the left side of your screen, it'll show your current wattage and average watts for whatever segment of it that you're on. And that's really, really handy. It allows you to keep like a constant effort while you're climbing. And I haven't seen that anywhere else in Zwift, except for maybe they have like this climbing portal, like a time warp thing. And I have not tried that yet. It might, they might have that in there as well. But uh, this is just built in in the Alpe du Zwift of the scenery and all that, so it's pretty great. All right, I need to grab some lunch, and I'll be right back. Out, bang. All right, we are out on an evening run. It's been really interesting. Got good training tips mixed in in here. I've been walking for a second. Let's start running again. I've got a water bladder backpack thing on, so when you hear the sloshing, that's what it is. So I've had a little bit of a hamstring pull on my left leg. I'm not very concerned about it. Because my race coming up, mountain biking, it does not bother me while biking. It bothers me only while running. So I noticed the past two runs, I think yesterday or a couple days ago, and then today, starting off running, you know, decent amount of pain in the left hamstring and then it went away smart thing to do is to make a mental note how many miles before it went away and then over your runs you can see if it's improving so it went away at 1.4 miles got a little bit of a hot spot developing in my jogging shorts down at the Krizage adjusting while I walk here. Let me turn this sideways. There's coyotes just a few minutes ago. And I had River with me and was struggling with the run, you know, because the pain of that hip thing, even though it went away, kind of slowed me down. Had a call when I got home from work with the financial advisor. Shout out. And by the time I got running, you know, it's getting kind of late. And the other thing is, yeah, so my run's kind of slow. Really wasn't that painful, but just kind of slow after the hamstring thing went away. Let's start running again. Oh, here comes somebody walking with their dizog. How's it going? Hello. Hi. It's okay, buddy. Dog almost bit me. You would have had it on audio. Anyway. It's going to get real quiet again here for a minute. And I was like, man, my legs are painful. I think I'm going to do the horrible thing and cut my run short. I'm like, why? Why do my legs hurt? I was like, oh, yeah. I did intervals on the bike this morning. Of course, that's going to make my legs wobbly. Let's run down to this. I'll do a run walk. A little flat and then a downhill. 
here a tenth of two tenths of a mile before it goes back up again. We'll walk the uphill. Cruise the downhills, work the uphill. Keep the running shoe down. <laughs> anyway. So a good running route. If you live someplace where it's hot, it has all kinds of out and backs and dog legs and circular kind of routes. So you're never running in the same direction for a long time. Especially if it's from the south heading north if you live in Texas because if you get a tailwind from the south, it is hot. Here, we got an uphill. We're going to walk this. And anyway, the other benefit is you can knock off the little extraneous dog legs. That's what we call them. Little out and backs and little loops hanging off. Lobes. Or if it's like a figure eight, you can cut out. Like mine is kind of a figure eight, sort of. It's like a big flag. I cut off a lot of the flag. I'm just doing the pole. <laughs> oh, anyway, fueling, hold on. Not much because I'm walking, but a little bit. Keep you in a good mood. A little bit of Gatorade, a little bit of table sugar, a little bit of sodium citrate. Boom. And where's the magnetic clip? There you are. Let's run a little bit more. And Thanksgiving is in two days, and Kai's getting out of school a day early and coming home for Chris or coming home for Thanksgiving it's going to make it here tonight and I was suspicious because we kind of do this sort of thing in our family especially if we're running with a dog I was suspicious he was going to find me using find my family or find my friends out running so I'm running out in the darkness if you go look at the video about coyotes howling right after that I see this car coming down the road and it gets close I recognize it and it was Kai and he hadn't gotten home yet and he came by and found me and River was super excited and I said uh, you want to take the dog with you I was 3.3 miles three and a half miles into like a six and a half mile run and River was just stopping constantly to sniff stuff. It's getting kind of frustrating. And so without River, I could just run. So Kai's like, yeah. And I said, I'll see you back at the house. And Kai takes off with the dog. And uh, then I start running without the dog, without having to stop every once in a while. And the running got hard. <laughs> like too hard, you know. I was having to stop. I realized I was having to stop anyway. And yeah, I'm, I'm recovering from what they call mad calf which is some kind of calf strain still so i gotta be a little bit careful still losing weight so i'm not as fast and gliding like i want to be got the left hamstring issue which is just one of those things and then yeah the bike intervals in the morning so i'm running up this gradual incline and I just couldn't do it I had to start walking and I was like oh crap so then I'm like you know what I'm cutting off the flag on the flagpole headed straight back to the house I'll run walk it and I'll leave my watch on to get the mileage because it counts because in an Ironman you actually do a lot of walking 
for a lot of people kind of depends on the race and where you're at for that race some races you can be really trained up run the whole run some races you're just there to finish it's okay either way and or it's like super steep and you need to practice your your walking hi i'm chris I'm walking anyway i'm almost back to the house getting close i got i think half a mile so i get back to the house and enjoy an ipa prop my feet up and swim in the morning and probably not run again for a few days i'll probably bike tomorrow night i don't know because we got thanksgiving and then kai asked he said he's got to do a five-hour ride on friday his coach wants him to do a five-hour ride and well i go with him i was like absolutely because he's the only person i know in town that's my speed over a really long ride he's a little bit faster than me but slowing him down to my speed is perfect for him for volume and bass I'm running downhill now. People get overtrained because they try too hard. You did your last, all your runs, you know, or whatever pace, and then you have a difficult day. You can't force yourself to run that pace. You end up hurting yourself. Yeah, it is. Just slow down. It's okay. Practice something else. Practice strategy, patience, long-term planning. Start a podcast. Record yourself. Just record yourself for your family so you can hear how crazy it was out there. But anyway, got this coworker that's going to do a marathon, and he has no clue how to do anything that long. I think, well, fueling wise, running wise, he's fine. Well, he's got to train up too. But that's not the concern. I was telling him, he's an you know, average runner, so it's taking like four hours. And so I told him, oh, dude, you want to have a really good run and not blow up at the end? You need to take like 200 calories an hour at least, maybe upwards to three if you can train up to it. He's like, what? And I'm like, well, the, pro- the problem. So like those gels, you know, they have about it's two problems. One, people load them up with caffeine. So you got to be careful, make you sick to your stomach if you take them at a rate that's actually useful. And then the other one is you got to drink enough water with the gels, like 10 ounces of water. And these little Dixie cups that you get running through, they ain't going to cut it. So you walk the aid stations and load up a water bottle or something like that. And this is all stuff I learned from running ultra marathons where fueling is crucial. And you're like, oh, it's a marathon. It's not an ultra marathon. Well, anytime you go over an hour and a half, especially two hours, you are running out of blood sugar, glycogen, and you've got to fuel that race to have your best race and have a good time and finish happy. Ooh, it's spooky right here. I'm actually kind of deep in the woods right here. Well, for a neighborhood. Anyway, so I made a, so you can buy like gel flasks, right? You can probably get them online, but if you buy hammer gel, it'll come with a gel flask. And goo, GU, also does that sometimes so i got like three or four gel flasks you know so i'm like okay i'm gonna run tonight so i brought all my stuff up there to work and i'm like i'm gonna run tonight i'm doing kind of a longer run and i'll i'll make more fuel than what i really need just to show you so i made a gel flask 
you know, of homemade fuel of 200 calories. I did uh, 100 calories of Gatorade powder, like bulk Gatorade powder, just plain Gatorade powder, which makes it taste good. And then uh, 100 calories, which is 25 grams of uh, table sugar. Added it together, used a scale to make sure uh, that I was getting 50 grams, which would be 200 calories. And then I, it's clear-ish. Well, Gatorade's got some color to it. But anyways, I showed him you got a little drop of food coloring. So you can actually see it. Try to use clear bottles for all kinds of stuff. Even gel flasks. So you see how much you got left instead of just guessing. Because you can't see through the bottle. And then I said, <laughs> this is the good one. I showed him how I run. You know, I carry this. And I got running shorts with big pockets. That's another thing you learn in trail running. Pockets. There used to be a funny video about that. Why, are you do, you, why do you do trail running? I like pockets. Big pockets. I can put a sandwich in there. Put a foot-long Subway sandwich in my pocket. So I showed him, like, one of the Sunto or Solomon, like, water bladder. Like, the ones that are kind of almost handheld, but they're real long. They're like, how do you run with that in your pocket? I'm like, it just fits. And then you, you shop for running shorts until you find ones with deep enough pockets that your phone doesn't bounce out. Your shit doesn't bounce out. And then, what was the other one? Oh, well, anyway... I said, I just got a call from my son or a text message. He wants to do a five-hour ride on Friday. I said, I'm not going to make a five-hour bottle. I'll, I'll go ahead and make a four-hour bottle right now. But I'm going to show you 300 calories an hour. And remember, it's four uh, calories per gram. So 300 calories per hour times four hours. It's 1,200 calories. You divide it by four because that takes your calories back down to grams. So you can weigh it out. So now you're back down to 300 grams. So in a water bottle, biking water bottle, a taller one, I put in one, like about 100 calories, like 25 grams of the Gatorade powder, which makes it taste good. And then 275 grams of table sugar. And it's just scoop after scoop after scoop. And they were like horrified. They're like, oh my God. I go, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? But you got to remember, you're not drinking all this right now. You're drinking over four hours. And at 300 calories an hour, that's not even the top end of what a lot of people do. The fast people that win. And... I had a complete brain fart there for a second. You are burning anywhere between 600 and 900 calories per hour. Closer to 600 if you're on the bike. Closer to 900 if you're running. And because you're burning it faster than your body can store it, it's actually okay. And then you sip the fuel and then rinse it down with water. And it doesn't, you end up, your teeth are clean when you finish. Like probably cleaner than when you started because you're rinsing your teeth all the time. <laughs> but it looks on their face, man. And then I was like half a teaspoon of sodium citrate, which you buy in bulk. And I showed him that per liter of water. And then the guy, you know, this is, I mean, I was in the same boat. He's like, okay, so how, how much water do you drink per hour? And I go, well, there's two things you need to remember. One, probably about a liter per hour, easily. It's probably your base, no matter what. And he's like, dude, how do I drink a liter per hour? You know, running. And I go, the smart people figure out how to, that it's worth it to slow down, walk the aid stations, power down water. And then the other thing is, is if you're doing two gels per hour, look at what it says on the gel pack. It's 10 ounces of water talking about 20 ounces that's two-thirds of a liter if you're doing three gels 
or 300 calories, that's a freaking liter of water just to dilute the gels so they don't make you puke. He's like, oh man, that sounds like I don't want to do that. Like I don't want to take whatever I was. And I said, yeah, but if you do do it, it's awesome energy the entire way. When I get addicted to the sugar, maybe it's like, nope, you don't because it's not enough to even come close, even half of what you're burning. So it ends up washing out. I learned that from holistic guru, Christine Lynch. Anyway, back at the his house. Let's see what's up. Hello. Oh, you got a football. So how was the drive here? Keaton. Okay. Well, what do I look like? Okay. What's up, Keys? Hello. All right. We're going to see one how this records is coming from the car or is this coming from else yeah i think it's coming from the car we're gonna see how the quality of this is <sighs> like bluetooth connected to the truck so headed to the pool i got two things that are interesting one is the pool will be closed on friday so i'm gonna this it's gonna be another second week in a row of three which i don't like but uh not so much that i miss swims that's part of it uh, but also, I tend to overtrain biking and running because I normally would go swim, and that keeps me happy. I don't need to work out and something else. I should probably get back into having our gym and lift weights, but our work promised a gym, so we canceled our old gym, especially because the old gym had a swimming pool and filled it in. So I hung on as long as I could in disbelief, and, well, they didn't actually fill it in yet. You know, it's covered and finally canceled, and that's a weightlifting gym right near my house. So... The best solution there is actually to go to the, go lift weights instead, some upper body. But anyway, it was so interesting during the pandemic. You know, everything just started falling apart little by little, death by a thousand cuts. And, you know, you build up this life of having everything set up correctly. A swimming pool that's on the way to the on the way to work instead of I have to go past work and around and come back, save some time and money. And, you know, indoor pool with a lock, with locker. <laughs> It just makes everything harder. Like, everything's harder after the pandemic trying to get squared up. They moved my office further away from my house, significantly further away. It's a longer drive, which eats into uh, not only training time, but stress. But then I had some nice things happen where um, Boy Scouts was over. I was out of it. So I could not have to be a scoutmaster anymore. Got some time back, a lot of time back from that. But, yeah, let's see. Uh, back to the, the swimming hamstring. Uh, also a hack. Um, the hack is my wetsuit's still a little bit damp. My wetsuit. my swimsuit's still a little bit damp from a couple days ago. It's not wet, but it's damp. And it's going to be cold when I put it on. And so my car has heated seats. And I have uh, learned to put the swimsuit on the, seat, on the heated seat. You don't even need it. And sit on it on the way to the pool. And then by the time I get to the pool, it'll be it's kind of fun. And... Uh, speaking of that, you know, every once in a while, I'll see somebody complaining about the cold or whatever, and I recommend to them, you know, put on a swim cap before you get in, and don't be ashamed to have at least a uh, swimming vest. So they make these surfing, uh, and you don't have to worry about um, arm mobility at all because it's just a vest. It's not restricting your shoulders. And use that uh, right when you first get in, and swim a couple laps, warm up, and then get out of the vest and leave it on the side of the pool. Make sure you rinse it out because chlorine's bad for your stuff. Yeah, you could have a it's, – it's just getting into the pool. I love the water. I've swam in the coldest stuff. I have no problem with it. It's just right when you first get in that is so hard because water that's good to swim in is actually cold because you build up heat swimming in it. Uh, not for casual swimming. This is for laps. Kind of empty. But anyway, I've got to re-up my pool pass. All right, leaving the pool. Man, it is cold. I think it's in the 40s. Clear skies and a brisk wind coming from the north making things oh i was going to do something fun okay my truck has remote start 
Let's uh, heat this baby up. Da da. There you go. Really cold. I'm a little bit late for work because I had to repurchase a swim pass. But it's worth it. You know, what are your priorities? Gotta rearrange everything for my my shampoo doesn't spill like always. I get it gets hot, I guess, sometimes, and then it expands and pops the top. Maybe I should put it in a different type of bottle. And yeah, I think that's what we're gonna do. And then add my swim stuff in there. All the rest of this. Oh wait, no. Woo! Dude, my hands are getting cold just being out here. I was going to buy a new swim parka, but I do have another option for you. You can get, swim parkas are expensive. You can get a kind of a puffy jacket. Make sure it has a hood and a zipper, obviously. You know, these puffy jackets have been the rage for quite a few years now. They are amazing in cold weather, especially for wind blocking. Dude, I'm wearing a beanie hat and everything. That's pretty, uh, most people are like, well, so. Well, it's Texas. It's a little unusual. Guy at work was wearing one all day <laughs> in the office. <laughs> anyway, let me move this the other way. There we go. It's cold enough where I don't need to uh, wait till I get to work to change clothes and cool down and stuff because the locker room here is un air conditioned unheated and if it's the least bit warm it is brutal i talk about it a lot it is brutal to change clothes in there or to get back you know like into your work clothes like jeans and a nice shirt and that humidity in that locker room but now it's cold enough i can change right there they don't have to change at work anyway also man i need to shave and i need to get a haircut have to decide water bladder or haircut you know, camelback water bladder <laughs> all right so yeah swim was pretty good swimming a little bit slow a lot of that is uh, as i continue my little weight loss journey you know i'm under calorie just a little bit and that's why they don't recommend losing weight you know while you're peaking or training hard for an event but I just need to lose weight. It's gonna, I'm gonna save more. I'm gonna be faster in my event by losing weight than I am by not getting in the exact best training because mountain biking is very weight dependent sport because all the stopping and starting and all the up that you gotta do. Weight is a big problem in mountain biking. And the bikes are already like super heavy, relatively speaking. With all that suspension built in and beefiness anyway i uh did 4200 yards to the iron man swim and i swam easy and then saved a hard interval interval for the very end i did about 150 maybe 200 yards medium hard with the build to a really hard at the end you 
can feel a nice burn. Make sure I really drill it in nice. When you do those kinds of intervals, make sure to go set up the interval to be a little bit longer than what you think you're, you're going to need just by like 30 seconds or so. And that way you get a little buffer on the end of it in case you didn't go quite hard enough. You can go, keep going and then burn it in. Because I only need about 100, 150 yards of hard to really create a burn. But, you know, what if I didn't go hard enough at first? Well, then, so I just set it for 200. Make sure I get it. And then if I get it before I finish, then I just kind of coast to the end. But, yeah, uh, 126 pace, which is just over an hour. Just a little bit outside. Just over an hour for my... Uh, for an Ironman swim, which is nice. Talking to some people yesterday, the pool is, I was telling them it's 28.13 yards to a side, which makes these crazy, annoying uh, swim results, you know, when you post them. I swam 4,219 yards. It's like, what? I've had people go, dude, what? <laughs> anyway, oh, I got Kai's show, his interview out last night. That was really cool. I've been trying to uh, eat a granola bar of some kind in the locker room as I'm getting dressed. And then I'm not eating while I'm driving. And then we can have a nice training log recording and I'm not eating while driving it's the day before Thanksgiving and I bet the offices are going to be uh, pretty pretty vacant which is good and bad you know I can actually get a lot more done because I'm not being interrupted with uh, fixing problems here and there I work in IT and there's always I think in every, every uh, industry there's always little things that pop up I would close my door to make people leave me alone but part of my job is being there in case little things pop up and I need to fix it it's like half my job description so now I've got a bit of a conundrum with the pool being closed on Friday I don't know exactly what to do over the next few days to sit down and look at the weather and the weather's actually going to be pretty great it's going to be cold but oh yeah Kai wants to do that five hour ride He's discovered a gravel road, or all the gravel roads east of him, finally. So he's super happy he sent me a picture. And uh, the downside is, though, that's good and bad. He said it, some of it's smooth, but some of it's chunky, which is it actually cut a tire, and uh, or cut a, uh, popped a tire, so he had to plug it. And I know one thing, when I get to work, I'm going to see if the milk I have there is still good and eat some Ezekiel cereal. That stuff is so good for weight loss and health. It's so high in fiber. You eat it early in the day. Don't eat it before you work out. It's got a little bit too much fiber in it, or probably a lot too much fiber in it. And it'll make you feel full for a whole lot longer throughout the day. It's really good stuff. I do the raisin, the Ezekiel cereal with raisins in it. It's kind of like raisin bran. Yeah, what did we uh, end up doing last night? Um, running. And I cut it short. Yeah, so feeling a little tired, I guess, from not enough calories. It's really interesting. I drive a white truck. 
And one of the upsides of driving a white truck in Texas is you can get away with driving around and through construction sites without people stopping you. <laughs> they, they get You get that 15-second head start on, uh, on somebody trying to stop you because they think, oh, it's a construction. By the time they realize you're not, you're already almost through. It's pretty cool. All right. I am at W to the ERK. Nice swim. Let's see if the bosses are here today. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget. Uh, my mom told me my first real job. I said, it sucks. You know, everyone's seniority got to take off uh, the holidays. And I couldn't. I have to sit here and work all by myself. And then uh, she said, yeah, but don't forget. Work is really easy on those days because there's nobody around. And you can do what you need to do and relax. And it's nice. And you're getting paid the same and you're really not missing out on uh it just works easier during during that time so it all kind of washes out okay so i am gonna go in and have some snackage all right out bang hey i'm walking out to my car to go to Freebirds, my favorite burrito place mostly because i've gone there so much in the past <laughs> i've got some free burritos to burn up i got points oh and uh Got some triathlon news and also a revelation. It's kind of cold out here. I was actually cold. The revelation is not that I'm cold. Just an interesting side thing is this is the first time that I was actually cold in my office this fall slash winter. Still full. And I was trying to warm up. That used to happen to me all the time surfing in California. It would take me almost until noon to warm my body up and then also i would bend over and tie my shoes and then you got the salt water that runs out of your nose out of your nasal passages things that surfers know because when you wipe out you get uh, salt water jammed up your nose <laughs> anyway triathlon news tri bike transport this is interesting because i have my own story with tri bike transport their story currently in the news is that they might be having trouble paying part of their uh, vendors, subcontractors, or whatever. And it seems like after a big race went down and a shipment of bikes, I guess we should back up. Hold on. We should back up and say, what is Tri-Bike Transport? It's a company that realized that people have trouble getting their bikes to races, and if they kind of consolidate it, and put bikes like on I don't know on what cargo shipping containers of some sort or other methods. They can send that across the country and pick up bikes, and then they show up uh, at the race event, and then you go and pick up your bike at the race event. And for example, for me to do tri bike transport for my race, I'm in Canada, which was up in Whistler. So far Northwest Canada, well, far Northwest America, so far that was in Canada, just regular Western Canada. They, uh, I forgot where the pickup point was for my bike, but you know, like a tri-bike transport, something was coming through Texas and you had to get your bike on it. I think the pickup point was probably either Houston or Austin. And I had a couple of friends that were going to do, uh, Whistler, Ironman Canada, as well and they one of them actually took my bike took my bike and um with them 
I believe. And then they, it got loaded on the uh, transport. Anyway, the whole point is somehow you get your bike on some sort of transport thing and then they take it. And this is the alternative to you taking your bike personally with you uh, by plane, usually. I think if you were driving, you, um, you just take your own bike. So when I got to Ironman Canada, Tri-Bike Transport was there. And I went, I had uh, some sort of tag or ticket maybe. And I went and picked up my bike from there. And I'll get into my story of uh, issues here in a minute. Because up until then, everything was fun. And also, you know, when they uh, ship it back. Same, same kind of thing. It came back, I guess, to the Austin area or something like that. Anyway... The shipping company says that Tri-Bike Transport has not paid them for shipping the bikes. They owe them money at something like $300,000. And they're going to hold the container or the shipment, however it's set up, of the bikes until they get paid by Tri-Bike Transport. Now, the funny thing, it's only like 100 and something bikes. But it turns out... The value of these bikes is a million dollars. And also, now you're starting to mess with people's bikes. A lot of these people are, I bet, are lawyers too. So this is going to get figured out real quick. Because if Tri-Bike Transport doesn't, we'll call them TBT. If TBT doesn't pay the shipping company in 30 days, I think it is, that company has the right to sell off the bikes and, you know, to reclaim the money owed. And... Uh, TBT is saying you can't sell those bikes. They're not ours. They're actually, we're a transport, we're a service company, transportation company. That's not something that you can hold. They're not actually ours for you to do that with. And so now it's gone to court and it will be figured out whose bikes they really are and who's going to pay whom and how. So several things here. One uh, is Tri-Bike Transport in some sort of financial trouble. It's kind of interesting. And then, yeah, don't mess with people's bikes. They will lose it. And also don't mess with particular people's bikes, especially people that have um, access to lawyers or are lawyers uh, because lawsuits will start flying real quick. And I believe triathletes are heavily infested with lawyers and dentists is the joke. It's the only people that can seem to afford these high-end bikes. So this one is one to stay tuned for. This is going to get real ugly real quick. This may be on that uh, chart of the Venn diagram of uh, F around and find out. <laughs> the overlapping. <laughs> Triathletes, uh, lawyers and dentists, uh, $12,000 bikes in the middle. Let's see what happens. Okay, so also real quick. Uh, what happened with me, I would not, my experience is everything about tri-bike transport was awesome, right? Um, I knew where my bike was. I felt like it was safe, you know, all that stuff. The pickup, drop off and pick up apparently, you know, real, real nice, smooth, streamlined process. So done the way it should be. There's nothing wrong with that. My bike, when we did this, was brand new, a brand new speed concept. And I only had like a few months of training on it, maybe. And when I went to go pick it up, on site at the race to get ready to race it. I picked it up 
and kind of looked it over and noticed some kind of an interesting scratch that did not look good on the fork. And I took it to our condo that I was staying with the other guys. Uh, I think there was three other guys that were all, they were all my friends from Texas that we were all doing in Ironman Wisconsin or uh, um, Canada. And God, too many Ironmans. So looking at it more closely, there was a rub something it wasn't a scratch like something rubbed on it but continuously for thousands of miles probably and it rubbed through the paint and not just took off the paint but took out a little bit of the carbon and the carbon on the fork is real thin there you know because it's aerodynamic and it wore into the carbon just a little bit but that's structural damage on a very delicate part of the bike if it was somewhere else on the bike you know say like uh, i don't know seat post or something like that then or like the real thick, beefy part of the chain stay or uh, bottom bracket. I've got some scratches and wear through on there too, but that piece is like so solid. It's where like I had chain drop and it's like scraped stuff. Uh, I've wanted the, uh, that to not be an issue on my fork where it could crack and I could go flying into uh, the bushes and die on a steep downhill. And yeah, after, I took pictures of it immediately. And then when I got back to Texas, and got around to it. I think right from the beginning, I, I, while I was there, I sent an email to Tri-Bike Transport and said, hey, uh, this is damaged and I'm going to, I'm just letting you know now, um, I'm going to want to have my bike, uh, my fork replaced. And I figured they have insurance for this kind of thing. It's no big deal. The bike, there's a million of these forks out there. Yeah, they're kind of expensive, but that's your problem. You're, you're the one that did it. And then when I got back to Texas, the battle with them over getting that fork replaced was... Uh, a bit more than it should have been. They tried haggling and, and arguing with me over it. And uh, there was nothing they could do because I think their beef was at first they thought, they said, sure. They looked up the price of a Trek Speed Concept fork and it wasn't that expensive, a couple hundred bucks or something. Well, it turned out that it wasn't the cheap one that they had looked up. A Trek Speed Concept triathlon bike, which is non-UCI legal, has a bigger, deeper, wider fork that is much more expensive. And so we're talking like, it was like a thousand dollars. And so the entire profit that they made plus some, you know, of me, uh, transporting the bike with them was eaten up and gone. And so there was a lot of back and forth with them and the bike shop owner, like having to verify and all this, you know, they were trying to be ugly about it, but at this, at the, uh, tri bike was TBT was, but there was just like nothing they had no legs to stand on. I had all the proof in the world. I had photos. Like I did the right thing. I had photos stay. And so they, they did uh, the right thing eventually is what I'm saying and paid for the fork replacement. And I think I've got the old fork in my garage. That's interesting. I forgot about that. I should make some art out of that thing. Anyway, what I learned from that, my opinion is if you have a very expensive bike and you're relying on somebody else to ship it with tons of other bikes, I think I did see when I picked up my bike at Canada, you know, it was in like a big container thing and things were kind of, you know, strapped down and stuff like that. Um, it was in there, you know, 150 other bikes, a metal bike. So aluminum or steel or titanium, I would still probably use tri-bike transport again and be okay with it with a little bit of like, man, you know, another bike could kind of fall over and, you know, damage my paint. And especially if it was metal bike and it's a bike that's not brand new that i've you know really trying to keep pristine for as long as i can before it gets its first scratches and wear and tear on it but i think my opinion 
is I would not put a carbon bike, and they're almost all carbon now. I would not put a carbon triathlon bike for shipping. I'm not saying by by TBT. I'm just saying by anybody that's not me, I would not uh, put it and leave it up to people paid by the hour, however much or little, to pack that thing up and put it in with a whole bunch of other bikes and then have it bounce around on the freeways for 10 days and people loading in more bikes and taking bikes off and more bikes in and more bikes off where basically probably all that happened to my bike is one strap of one bike was touching uh, my bike or the way they they held it down strapped it down you know ended up having a strap that was rubbing against my fork and that's not a problem for a few minutes but it's a major problem for hours or days where eventually like wear through uh, something structural on carbon so yeah, I have a titanium road bike that's old. I'd 100% put that on tri-bike transport. I wouldn't care. You know, that thing is probably going to survive the trip. It does have a carbon fork on it though, but it's not like a super thin and super expensive carbon fork. You know, that thing's old now. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not new or anything like that. But I just would not put my baby out on a uh, transport thing and rely on other people. It's not their bike, you know? They don't care as much as you do to pack it just right. You're like, oh, well, you have... So let's use the comparison of the airlines, right? Airlines, you are taking a very big risk. But at least you're packing the bike yourself in a, a box. And, you know, you're making sure that at least, you know, all the soft bits and stuff are, are protected by foam and, and however you want to... Pool noodles sometimes people use on the tubing to protect it for, to keep from getting uh, scratched up. And... It, when you hand it over to somebody else, at least you've packed it up. Try bike transport, literally, you hand them your bicycle while it's rolling. You know, you roll it towards them and then they they take it from you. And how it gets strapped down, how it gets secured is is their own is their own thing. Um, but I do actually really appreciate the business and I like the business. And I remember reaching out to them, asked if they wanted to advertise on the show because I thought it's it's a it's a cool business and I want to support a uh, triathlon business. So yeah the uh, tri-bike transport thing is interesting. I do not want to see them go out of business because I think that is a, a good business model to have that is helpful to the uh, triathlon industry. And then also triathlon news is uh, Sebastian Keenley uh, supposedly has done his last professional race, professional Ironman. We'll see, but that's the word on the street. And I met him at Galveston Half Ironman. I think one year when Lance Armstrong was doing it and he had already won uh, his world championship. And that's Sebastian. People are like, why do we keep talking about Sebastian Keenley? Well, he won Ironman world championships one year. And I, I think only once. But anyway, he's like a really, really cool laid back guy and uh, really popular. Everybody likes him. And Kai was maybe around 11 at the time. And we were there with Kai's, uh, some other kids too, also from Kai's triathlon team. So it wasn't just, it wasn't just Kai. It was like about three or four uh, boys that were uh, all young triathletes. And I was like, that's Sebastian Keenley. And they were like, what? And they, they knew who he was, even though they were only like 11. And we went over there and he gladly signed an autograph for us. And that was really cool. So thank you, Sebastian, for all the uh, years of awesomeness in the sport. And I definitely expect him to continue being a figure in the industry and being an inspiration to so many. So that was cool. All right, I'm gonna go get a burrito out, bye. All right, let's talk a little bit about training strategy and maybe a little bit of fueling and hydration for the race coming up. So the race is 
a marathon mountain bike race and it's 42 or 44 miles. I can't remember. Uh, that's not what's important. What you do is you look at the times of people and get an idea from these previous race results about what might you do. And I've done the race twice before, so I've actually got a really good estimate. And I believe I might be faster this time. I've been getting faster at the marathon mountain biking races and at all the mountain biking races. I moved up from Cat 3 to Cat 2 and even raced Cat 1 at a couple of them. Anyway, so then next you look at your overall volume. So you can look at your overall fitness volume and training peaks. And I am fit. And it's because actually I'm a triathlete. So when my biking legs are sore, I go swim. And for extra hard stuff, I go run. And when I'm tired from running, I go bike. <laughs> but because I'm a multi-sport athlete, I can get in way more volume because it's different sports. I'm not using the same muscles. Even if I do use the same muscles, I'm not using them in the same way uh, from bike to run. And we'll get into how you calculate chronic training load in a little bit. But if you wanted to be a Kona qualifier, for example, you would need a chronic training load, CTL, let's say about 125, 130 maybe. And I'm actually at 125 right now. Now, obviously that's not directly relatable to your speed that you're going to put out because then you have to add in weight and the type of race and all that. But these numbers, you can actually look up slow twitch com is actually the website where you can find most of this stuff or links to it or resources that'll get you there. And I remember that I needed like 140 or something like that to have a successful Ultraman. And I started nine months out and worked my way up to 140 chronic training load. And it's nice because I would stair step it. I'd go up for a few weeks, then take a week off, kind of like do like half volume and then start up again. And then every four weeks, you know, I was another like five points higher than the week before. And over nine months, I just backwards calculated it is easily up to 140. The only trouble is actually finding the time. But with gentle progression, you can add in this volume. So then there's something really interesting about the style of race this is. So it's all cycling, obviously. And then it's not cycling like road cycling or even gravel biking. Mountain biking is different. It is punchy with lots of coasting and then hard accelerations coasting and hard accelerations and it's not in reaction to other people or you know whatever it's literally because you have hard turns and you got to put on the brakes you're always putting on the brakes in mountain biking and what's funny is the greatest mountain bikers are as you get good you start to realize the way to be faster is to quit using your brakes so much and just <laughs> get some guts man and go through stuff without touching your brakes and it'll carry you through the momentum will actually carry you up and over the next thing because you have more momentum from the last thing because you didn't put on your brakes. And so like better tires, smarter air pressure, uh, better skill set, obviously. And, you know, not putting on your brakes on a steep drop so that you can use that momentum to take you further up the other side and have to use less work to get you up over the other side. And that's how the guys and girls that are fast mountain bikers are really fast. But regardless of, of technique and momentum, it's punchy. Wait, I want to step back just a few seconds and talk about, you know, style and skill. When I, I used to mountain bike a long time ago. And then, 
you know, five years ago at the start of the pandemic and a little bit before that with Kai's mountain bike racing and, and I was mountain biking a ton and I was trying to beat Strava um, segment times and such and trying to improve my own times. I realized, you know, to get faster, uh, there was no more fitness to be had. You know, it's just not being as afraid and having more faith in the bike and using body English to get around stuff. And I think, if this is an interesting one, there's something funny where those of us that grew up and started mountain biking on older mountain bikes with the 26 inch wheels, not 29, but 26, and steeper geometry and long stems, we went over the handlebars, it's called endoing, you endo. We went over the handlebars so much and crashed so much that I think it built in PTSD of we don't have faith in the bikes like people, kids that grew up with 29ers. So Kai grew up on a 29, once he was big enough, on a 29er. That was his first real mountain bike. And these things are like wagon wheels, man. They will go over practically anything if you don't, you know, put yourself in the wrong position. And then also they're stretched out. And so you sit more in them now instead of on top of them. So compared to older mountain bikes, these things are like sleds. But when I've got a deck, two decades of, of going off of a drop and almost flipping over the handlebars or flipping over the handlebars. Or I remember one time seeing a guy get life flighted out of a canyon because he went over the handlebars, you know, but these modern mountain bikes, they, it, they're actually kind of hard to flip over the handlebars, but you still have that like fear in you if that's not what you grew up on. And so I learned like mountain biking, like I wanted to uh, make podcasts about it at length about how I was figuring out how to push into turns and you know use the momentum and coast over this and all all the crazy techniques I was finding about how to mountain bike and get faster that I was having to do to be faster like floating over uh, rough spots and using dropper posts to get further back and my mountain biking skills went through the roof. Especially, like I said, I worked my way up from uh, Cat 3 to Cat 2 and then sometimes Cat 1 races. It kind of depended on the race. But anyway, there's we, when we do road biking and even gravel biking, we are not experiencing the beauty of what you do on a mountain bike as far as like the push into turns and the body English and using momentum uh, over stuff and into things and around things and and how much mountain biking is more like um it's more like snowboarding where you carve on the trail all the time and it really teaches you to be such a better bike handler okay i just wanted to get that out now i didn't even do it justice <laughs> but anyway after the next race i'll maybe comment on it more when i have more to say about it and do it and it's fresh on my mind but anyway the the thing about mountain biking is that it's punchy and when i didn't do any road biking and i didn't do didn't have a gravel bike yet i rode my mountain bike i think for about two years without and just epic mountain bike long distance stuff and without doing really any road biking and i noticed something uh when i would go back and try to do any kind of road biking is i wasn't able to sustain a constant effort and i think you forget you know how to apply uh, for your body forgets your muscles forget how to apply force evenly 
and it's just hard. And then you fa- and failure, hard, failure, hard, failure. So I guess I was like pedaling too hard because I was used to having to put out, I don't know, I don't have a power meter on my mountain bike. I do have electronic shifting, which is a story. The, um, the, my old mountain bike that I had, which was a great mountain bike, it was a 29 er was modern is a, uh, Orbea hardtail. It, I think the rear derailleur hanger was a little bit bent looking back. And so it would just not stay tuned as far as in alignment with shifting. And I got so sick of it. And I had electronic shifting on my triathlon bike that I knew how electronic shifting always keeps th- things aligned and keeps your shifting per- perfect. So my next, oh, I think it was on that Orbea. I put electronic shifting on that Orbea and then never had uh, shifting problems ever again as far as alignment and ghost shifting and stuff like that. But anyway, for the life of me, I had such trouble riding a road bike like a road bike. And it really goes to show how your body and neuromuscular system adapts to whatever you're doing to the detriment of other stuff at some point. And it took a few months of when I got into gravel biking and doing real gravel biking a lot and less mountain biking for things to start smoothing out and for me not to have that problem anymore. It was really, really weird. But that's how punchy stuff is mountain biking. Oh yeah, like how many watts? That's That was the point that we're talking about power meter. I'm guessing, you know, bursts of five, 600 watts, like over and over and over, like every 30 seconds, five, 600 watts. And then coasting, five, 600 watts, coasting. <laughs> it is crazy what the power profile looks like. Especially if you're like a bigger person and you got a lot more weight to carry up uh, over stuff. And maybe also if you're not that great of a mountain biker and you don't have great as good a technique as some people and you're just having to power over things instead of uh, using body English and floating over stuff and using momentum instead. But anyway, on one hand, we've got the fitness, the CTL, chronic training load. Mine's at like 125. So I'm near uh, top Ironman kind of level fitness just in general. And that's been my experience that I have no problem going all day in these gravel races and other stuff that's like nine hours, 10 hours, not a problem whatsoever. I just don't fade. It's just a fueling issue. Uh, Let's see. But then the biking, uh, because this is a biking only race, it's one thing to be fit overall in like all these sports, but then you need to be a really strong cyclist to do a mountain biking marathon. Oh, and by the way, they also have a single speed class for this thing. That is one of the most awesome things to see when you line up at a mountain bike race and there's a squad of like three or four guys and girls uh, and you notice they're in a small group hanging out and getting ready to go with their start and <laughs> you notice they don't have any derailers or any, uh, they have a single cog in the back. You're like, holy crap. Anyway, so to train for this, I mentioned either later or earlier in this podcast, depending on where I put it, that on Zwift, for example, uh, Titans Grove is real punchy. So that's like a really good example of how to uh, train, uh, like a terrain you would use to train for mountain biking if you were on a road bike. As soon as you put down enough power and get over something, it's coast. It's it's almost frustrating about how fast you end up coasting after you just put down power. So then I make sure I'm doing rides that are long enough Uh, The last time I did this race, I was four hours and 45 minutes. And I wasn't going all that hard. I was just enjoying myself. And 
I think it was after a few races like that where Kai said, Dad, I want you to race. And then I raced and, and moved up. <laughs> but that was like the shorter races, not the marathon stuff. And with the marathon stuff, I'm just out there to enjoy myself, you know, building zone two and, and maybe a little bit of zone three, getting ready uh, for my next Ironman. Just like a beautiful training day on the bike. And you need to make sure that you're able to actually mountain bike for five hours, you know? Four or five hours on a mountain bike is way different than four to five hours on a road bike, even a gravel bike. The amount of abuse the body can take is unbelievable. And that's why I switched bikes from a hardtail to a full suspension. I used to have a full suspension Cannondale, beautiful one, a long time ago. And I know what those are like and how it just makes everything so much cushier. And when I found the sport of marathon mountain biking and realized this isn't just like a one-off thing where I might do a race every once in a while. It's like we have a whole season with like five or six races in the, uh, in the fall, winter, spring. They don't do it over the summer. I think they're just too hot, too long to be in that heat. And they're inexpensive and it's beautiful terrain. And, and it's something I wanted to do after doing one of them, maybe on a hardtail. I was like, I can't do it. <laughs> I cannot do it. And I was doing shorter races, but cat one and that way they're longer. They add another lap if you do cat one. So I was doing some pretty long stuff on that hardtail. And I came through the uh, the lap area with the announcer and stuff to go out for another lap at Huntsville State Park. And it's real rooty there, like pine tree roots. Really, really bad. And the announcer said, oh, we've got a guy on a hardtail. And wow, everybody give him a round of applause as I took off going again. Hey, there's a deer. And... I was like, there's your sign. That's it. When somebody else makes a comment that what you're writing is not normal, then, or not appropriate, maybe it's definitely time. You're not crazy that you think that you need uh, something else. So when we got Kai, his full suspension uh, Trek Super Caliber, which is an all-out race bike, carbon fiber, um, I sold my Orbea, took off the electronic shifting, off that took the mechanical shifting off the canyon that he that he was riding put that on the orbea so that way i was keeping the electronic shifting for myself put the electronic shifting on the canyon and then boom i've got a full suspension mountain bike with um, electronic shifting and what else did it have oh it's more of a trail bike so actually i was faster on the orbea the body position was more aggressive, more head down. It's lighter. You know, it's just a hardtail. Uh, great suspension fork on it with a lockout on it too, remote lockout. Um, and the canyon is bigger, heavier, but it's also beefier and stronger. And I feel more comfortable and secure on it that I'm not going to break it. I broke the seat post on the Orbea um, in a ride one time. Snapped it right off. And... Um, what I noticed was, oh, it's got a little bit more travel. The Orbea had like 100 in the front, and this has got 120 in the front, or yeah, and then 120 in the rear, something like that. 
And the geometry is a little bit more, you sit a little bit more upright and the geometry is more spread out and then like a longer wheelbase. So you're less likely to flip over. And I was like, you know what? I'm slower, but I'm going to enjoy this a whole lot better. So it's kind of like, almost like riding a couch around. But what I noticed is it took the edge off of the, the impacts and it made it so that riding a marathon mountain bike course was actually not that bad. And also I got the grips, I had them on the Orbea too, that are kind of uh, wedge shaped and flattened out and they spread the load a little bit across the palms of your hands instead of banging a, a rod into your hands. It's like more of a flat surface, which is really nice. And then you have to learn a lot about suspension and tire pressure. It's one thing to have a nice suspension fork, but your suspension fork needs to work. And you also need to maintain it every once in a while. You have it going for a rebuild. Uh, that way it's uh, operational the way it's supposed to be. And then also in the rebound of the mountain fork, of the uh, mountain bike fork, it's one of the settings, right? There's preload, rebound, there's all this different stuff. But if you slow down the rebound too slow, then it's not reacting fast enough. And I, I forgot what they call it, but it's something like stacks up. It, it's, but it backs, backs up literally with energy in it that doesn't have any, enough time to let go because you've got the, um, the rebound set too slow. And the fork will start to stiffen up if as you as it heats up and as you go over a whole lot of rough stuff uh for a longer period of time like uh in quick succession and then it's got to have time to kind of like breathe and like let the let the rebound kind of back out again so there's all this dialing in of the suspension front and rear and the grips and all that so my point being is that marathon mountain biking is way more than just biking it's about um having a stronger upper body. I noticed that was crazy when I was mountain biking a lot. And then I would take a break from swimming and then I would swim again. I noticed that it was way easier to start swimming than when I used to just do road triathlon. Uh, the upper body is strong from the abuse that it takes. But if you go into a mountain, mar mountain marathon course race without, uh, being used to it, the end of your race is going to be pretty brutal. So I actually have not mountain biked since I went with Kai to the Austin Rattler course to pre-ride it like a month or something ago. And I was fine, but I did not do four hours. I did more like two and a half. And so anyway, leading up to the race, I'm going to go to our local mountain bike park this weekend and try to get in a four hour ride. And it's really just to kind of feel for what's, um, what's wrong with the bike. What needs work is the suspension all, all right. Do I need, I've lost some weight. So do I need to uh, soften up the suspension a little bit? And there's something also that's really frustrating about my mountain bike that I can't change without more money and investment in it. I don't feel like doing until I actually break the rear wheel is, you know how like you have to turn your pedals a certain distance before they engage. They do make hubs. I think they're Onyx is the brand that have like instant engagement, no matter what. My bike, the cheaper the hubs are, the, um, the longer it takes on a pedal uh, rotation for it to actually engage. And it's like with... Uh, it's like how many ratchet poles, there's different styles of hub internals, but how many ratchet poles and stuff are inside? And it's that if you reverse the wheel, it's put the wheel backwards and freewheel and it makes that sound. You know, it's how many of those sounds per, per rotation. It shows you like how fast it's going to engage. And a slower engaging wheel um, means that it, it takes a longer crank rotation. And my bike is terrible with that. Apparently it's got a really cheap hub in the back, I think, where the engagement takes like 
at least a quarter of a crank turn before it engage. If that's what it feels like, I haven't measured it. But so there's basically like slop in the drivetrain of when I start pedaling. And it's so frustrating because I've uh, my tri bike has um, really high end hubs in it and my gravel bike's kind of medium. And this is just terrible. And of all places that it actually matters, it matters with mountain biking. Because like I said, you're stopping and going and stopping and going constantly. And every time that you start to go again and nothing happens for half of a crank turn, that's time lost uh, trying to keep up with the person in front of you. Uh, because, you know, like you want to you clear like a log, let's say a small log. You're going over it. Your front wheel's over it, right? And so your pedals are level. Well, you want your front pedal as you push down on it to get over that log to immediately engage as you go over that log. If it takes half of a crank turn, a third of a crank turn, you're hitting the log with your pedal before it actually engages the drivetrain. See what I'm talking about? Well, then now you're not able to put down power to the drivetrain to get your rear end over the log. So yeah, there's that. That's frustrating. All right, I got to run in someplace. I'll be right back. All right, we are back. I had to run in the store real quick. So I don't have the best bike to be a high performer in this race. That's not really what I'm worried about. I just really enjoy doing these races and I enjoy uh, being there with Kai and he'll probably lap me. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you'll have time to lap me on this one. It'll be close. But uh, the training seems to be going pretty good. I haven't done quite enough hill work uh, like I would want. But now we're going to look at, um, you know, getting in a weekend of some mountain biking for sure to uh, make sure that I've got the uh, skill set and the bike's all operational and see how I deal with the, uh, the abuse on the hands because uh, that's what really starts to hurt after a while. And also, you know, like how much brake pads do I have left and see if the bike needs any work before race day. So then let's talk about uh, fueling and hydration and self-supporting. So there's a pass-through area on the loop let's say by the main road let's just call it that by the cabin is what they have there and as you come through you know everybody starts off on lap one and they do it it's like a slight uphill for about half a mile to a mile and it's uh ranch road which is you know double track which is great because and, and going uphill is great it's a gentle uphill it's one of the best uh, off-road starts i've ever seen because it takes a long time before you hit a uh, single track and uphill. So what that does is it uh, breaks apart the, the pack a little bit so people aren't fighting for position on the single track when you finally hit it. And so you do that, uh, yeah, you come in for your, for your lap. Now, Kai is going to have somebody there. We're not sure who yet. It might be his girlfriend. We're not sure if Emily's gonna be able to go or not. And his race is important enough where he needs a bottle hand up. And his bike also, this is interesting too, his bike has two bottle cages on it. And that was also a, a holdback on his bike uh, in the last podcast when I said we need to get him a better bike that's really meant for uh, pointy end racing. Um, the bike I've got has one bottle cage. And this was a thing for a while with trail bikes. And I think they finally realized to put... Uh, two bottle cages on it because the more modern version of my bike my bike's like three years old they put two bottle cages on it now, i don't want to drill the frame and put uh, uh bottle cages on it it's aluminum so it's possible it's possible on carbon too but it's uh it's okay but i just man i don't know if i want to do that um so i need to look at like how to strap a bottle on there but what i've done before 
is, you know, the flat arrow bottles from Triathlon. Uh, I've put those in a jersey pocket. Those will fit in a jersey pocket pretty good. And then I'm carrying that. And it's not too bad. And then also getting a adapter where you can strap a water bottle to your frame somewhere with like a Velcro strap and a rubber kind of grommet kind of thing that wraps around the frame a little bit. The thing is, will that stay in place, you know, when you're mountain biking, especially at race pace? There's a lot of stuff, you know, any kind of bike race, you notice after the first few bumps, you notice bottles are all over the place from things that don't stay on. And man, you can't afford to have this stuff fall off during a race. So I guess I need to do a little bit of testing of that. But yeah, Kai's going to have hand ups and two bottle cages. And my problem is I only have one bottle cage and I have nobody doing hand ups. Now, I solved this problem last year. Like I said, carrying a extra bottle, a flattish kind of bottle in my jersey pocket. And I've done that in training a lot. And also setting up a cooler and with duct tape. I learned this from doing ultra marathons with silver duct tape, putting my name and my race number on the cooler you know, and you write out permanent marker on the duct tape. And then that's on your cooler. And then I can just pull up to my cooler at the edge of the uh, race uh, raceway. I think you have to go through the uh, refuel area to get off the course. And you just pull right up to it. Uh, basically, don't even need to get off the bike. And just open the lid of the cooler and drop off one bottle and pick up another one, right? And honestly, it takes 10 more seconds than somebody handing, handing you a bottle. Uh, maybe it takes 15 by the time that you, you had to get off the course, you know, sideways a little bit. But then where things get even trickier is riding with a camelback. This race is long enough that I will run out of water in my camelback. And I've got a really cool tip and trick for that. You buy the camelback bladders that have uh, detachable, hot swappable hoses. And over time, you end up with multiple hoses. And, uh, and you can add these on actually to some of them, by the way. Uh, I guess one that doesn't even have it, I guess you could cut the line and then add like an inline one. But anyway, you just press a button and then it disconnects. So your existing Camelback, you know, backpack kind of thing, you take it off as you come up to the cooler and you grab a new Camelback bladder out of the, um, out of the cooler because that's all your stuff in there, nice and safe. And you pull the Camelback bladder, the old one, out of your Camelback backpack and you leave the, you um, disconnect the hose at the base of it. And now you don't have to thread a new hose through the camelback um, holes, you know, that go over your shoulder and out, out of the pack and then all that other stuff. You can use the existing hose with the existing magnets and its existing position all just with a snap. And then you shove the camelback, the new one, the bladder into the camelback, and then you can go. The problem is, is I don't have one per lap. I only own two of them. And I don't know what I'm going to do about that. Um, if I had somebody to support me, I would say, um, I would have, uh, hey, refill. When I drop off my first camelback bladder um, and it's empty and I'm out on my second lap, because it's three laps, can you refill my first uh, bladder with water and also... Um, I'll have like some electrolyte solution in it. And then, and then you put that in there. That would be ideal for me. That would be beyond ideal. So actually, I think I need to figure out how to do that. I need a third <laughs> camelback bladder. 
I actually, you know what? I've got an excuse now. I actually will get one because the two existing ones that I have both have uh, developed holes in them uh, with uh, leaks that I've actually used uh, a little bit of super glue and gorilla tape and um, over the, the little holes. And um, there's one hole each on, on each one and patched them. But now I've got two patched ones and I don't you know, have a lot of faith in them anymore. And those actually should be my backups and I should just get a whole new one. So yeah, you know what? I'm going to order a third one. I'm glad I talked to y'all. I'm going to order a third one and then I'll have one per lap and I'll be super happy. How about that? All right. I am going to go inside and get some uh, podcasting work done and some coaching work done. But uh, next we'll talk about fueling. And something funny happened today. I showed people at work how to make fuel. There's a guy that wants to start, he wants to do his first full marathon, I think. And I showed him how we make fuel with uh, table sugar and sodium citrate. And I made a four hour water bottle for um, fuel bottle for the bike, just to show him like the extreme end of this thing. And, and it was horrifying, like how much sugar you put into, um, into a bottle to get 300 calories per hour. And, but then you, you tell them that it's, yeah, it's 300 calories per hour and it looks horrific, but you're burning 600. So you're not even putting in half of what you're burning. Your body absorbs it and processes it so fast. And then you're rinsing, you keep your fuel separate from your water. So you take a chug of, uh, every 10 minutes, let's say of your fuel, and then, uh, you immediately rinse it down with water. So it doesn't, you don't get cavities. It's amazing how you don't ever get cavities from this. As long as you keep your fuel separate from your water and you, uh, take a sip of the fuel concentrate and then rinse it down with water to dilute it. And then it ends up uh, rinsing your mouth out at the same time. And then you don't get cavities. But anyway, we'll come back with that. uh, What I'm going to do for my fuel solution for this race. All right, let's do a little gear review. Let's talk about something really cool. I have both a long-term and a short-term review on Fillmore high flow tubeless tire valves. And also on my commute home, it looks like there's a traffic jam. But I am getting out of work early by an hour. So that's nice. And also uh, maybe future gear review. I'm looking at a Camelback replacement for me. And Kai is really wanting to get one of the U-Sui packs. And they're huge in gravel racing and maybe mountain biking. But they're just like a, they're like a fad. And they're selling for like double of what they really should. <laughs> And the only thing I can figure out is they have um, like kind of like a cross strap strapping that holds it down better. And I could see that being handy if you're like a, a, moto, a motocross racer guy where stuff is like high speed and super bouncy. But otherwise, I don't know. Camelback's always been fine for me. Anyway, Kai's saying he'll give me his newer old Camelback. If we let them get one of the Usui uh, hydration packs. Man, they're $100. Camelback's like half that for the same exact same amount of water. But then when you see all the pros winning wearing the Usui ones, man, that is attractive to the young brain. But anyway, yeah. Okay, so the Fillmore High Flow Valves. A little bit of backstory is that I think Presta Valves... Okay, so Schrader valves are the wider ones like you see on cars. And then Presta are the skinnier ones. And the reason Presta came about, supposedly, as bicycle tires got narrower and narrower, the rims got narrower and narrower, that having a hole in the rim as wide as a would take to put a Schrader valve in, they 
uh, that compromises the integrity of the of the room, which is funny. Uh, I've actually seen some calls for people to for them to put uh, Schrader valves back in <laughs> back in uh, rims, or and some people drilling out their their rims. Don't do that uh, to put Schrader valves in. I don't know why they would think it's easier, but anyway. Oh, Schrader valves. You can remove the core in those too. A lot of people don't know that, but you can. There's a little tool that you can unscrew them from the inside. But anyway, both of these valves uh, are higher end ones. Ones are made for real enthusiasts of the sport. Uh, you can unscrew the core, and then it's kind of like a hollow, uh, just a tube. And I've been using, you know, Presta, the skinny ones, forever. And I don't know how many years it was ago, 15 years ago maybe 20 years ago, we started using valve extenders and you screw those on, but you're still using the, the Presta valves, real skinny. And then you, that's where I learned, and also putting sealant, when sealant started becoming a thing, we would put sealant in our inner tubes. And I still would uh, today if, if I was you, if I were you. And even if you're using inner tubes, you don't have to be tubeless to, to use sealant. You put them in your inner tubes. And to do that, you unscrew the valve core and then you've got a, a hole that's big enough, that's unimpeded enough. There's no valve in it anymore holding the thing shut to um, squeeze sealant through. What has become a problem and what's uh, new, you know, bicycle valves and, and inner tube and tires have been around I think bicycles were invented before the car by a good margin. But anyway, that, that stuff's been around forever. So why is this a problem all of a sudden where they've invented a new design for the valves, the Fillmore's that I'm about to talk about? Well, people in companies have gotten sick of the clogging of the Presta valves, again, which are the narrower ones with the sealant. So sealant is so prevalent nowadays. Everybody's using it. that so many people, enough people having a problem where the job of sealant is to gum up little holes. That's how it works. It's doing its job right if it does the following. It starts to gum up your valve and it makes your valve over time harder and harder and harder to use until at some point it's a complete uh, shit show, I guess is the correct phrasing for it. And it starts off with trying to pump up your tires and you'll notice that you have to pump a few times for the, the pump to build up enough pressure to kind of blast through the, the, the cloggy part that's stuck in your, um, that's stuck in the valve. And that, you know, that's fine for a while. You can like work with that, but then it gets worse and worse and worse. And then around that time also, you get the backwards effect of that is because there's kind of gummy, lumpy stuff in the valve, it doesn't let the valve close all the way sometimes. So you get a slow leak in your valve because it won't close all the way down. And the combination of these two starts making it really frustrating. You go on a ride and you got a slow leak. And the next problem is uh, you go on a ride and what happened to me the other day that was the final straw for my gravel bike was I needed to air up the tire because I, I got a temporary uh, puncture and it's sealed, you know, while I was riding. And I was with Kai, really enjoying a really nice ride. I hadn't seen him in a while. And the 
tire was so low on pressure that I needed to, uh, because it lost air while it was trying to seal, that I needed to add some uh, air to it. And I've got my pump, and then I went uh, hand pump, and then I eventually moved to CO2s and used like two or three of those. Nothing would put air through that valve. Remember when I said you got to pump a few times for it to kind of blast through? At some point, it gets so gummy that nothing wants to blast through it to blow out the valve. And now you're stuck on the side of the road or the trail out in the middle of nowhere and go through three CO2s as they leak and nothing happens. It gets all screwy and and, um, and then, yeah, it was just terrible. And I was like, that's it. I'm done. I'm getting some Fillmore valves for my gravel bike. Now, how did I know to do that? Well, I've been through this before. I got Fillmore valves for my mountain bike probably a year ago, year and a half ago. And I splurged and got these things because I was having the same problem with my mountain bike and I was just frustrated with it. And I decided to treat myself with something nice, I guess. And also just test it out to see because it's kind of cool technology. The problem with these things is they're $50 and they should not be $50, by the way. But I guess, I mean, they make so few of them because they're, they're kind of rare right now. So the Fillmore valves are the narrow body of a uh, Presta valve uh, stem, right? So just looking at them, they look the same, except the part of the valve that's down inside the body of the, the tire and the rim, right? Where you can't see, that is wider. It like, like a, it flares out a little bit like a, like a trombone. And then that's where they put the valve. And the valve is, you know, the little rubber O-ring thing that uh, presses up against the body of the inside. And because the valve is in a spot where they've widened out the body of the, of the, um, of the valve stem, if you do the mathematics, it's actually the part that opens up and allows air to come through is I think four times the amount of volume of air allowed to pass through than before. And so it turns out they don't clog with sealant. Let me close this window. I need to change lanes here. I guess I'll commit the uh, stupid act of putting on my blinker. Okay, thank you. Here's your uh, unintentional tech review. My car has a stop-start um, cruise control. Where if, uh, all the way to zero, and then it, with, within like three seconds, the car in front of you starts moving again, it'll pick up again. That was like a requirement when I bought this car. I knew that my commute was gonna be longer and with a little worse traffic. And I'm like, I'm gonna get a car that not only is that not going to be as bad of a problem because it'll do, I call it traffic jam mode. It'll do that. But it's also, I did not, I did not know how much I would enjoy it. <laughs> I enjoy like watching it do its thing. And mine's not even a very good one. I have a Dodge Ram and uh, Emily's car is even better. She has a Volkswagen and um, hers is like smoother. And hers has better uh, lane keep as well mine's kind of like ping lane ping pong hers is more like not as ping pongy and then there's a thing called lane centering where the cars 
try to keep it dead center between the two sides of the lane. That's like the holy grail. That's what you should get. Anyway, so I got tired of messing with my valves. And the thing is, is when you take your mountain bike, so mountain biking, you got to get your bike somewhere and then you start biking. You don't really, you often, you don't bike from your house. A lot of times you get somewhere. So by the time I get out to somewhere and then I start messing with my tires and air pressure, that is not the time for me to be, I don't have all these resources like I have at home and it's hot. You know, I can't fiddle with stuff like indoors in the air conditioning or in the heat. It's like really crappy out there. There's, uh, mosquitoes, fire ants, all kinds of crap. I'm like, dude, I'm not messing with this. So I got these valves. I guess that's why I got them. And oh my God, they work. They work so well that uh, I, I, I really honestly can't believe it, how well they work. Just one little design change. And the other thing is there's side benefits of them not clogging, of them having so much air pass through that they don't clog, is that when you do pump up your tires, the air uh, is it's it makes it a lot easier to pump your tires the resistance at the pump level you know when you're pumping with your arms is like half of what it usually is with a regular pump because you're not trying to force air through a smaller spot and so it just goes right in quickly and that's nice and then uh, a small downside is when you let air out man it comes out fast so it's just a quick tap there's a little feature that They've designed the valve caps so that you just partially unscrew them and tap the caps and that'll let a little bit of air out, I guess, to kind of compensate for that. And then the crazy upside of these things that I think is, it's documented. It's not entirely a hidden feat because you can find it like on one of their videos on their website, I think is where I saw it. And then I was like, someday I'm going to try this is you can put sealant into your tires, fresh sealant without having to unscrew any valve core. These things don't have valve cores the way they're designed. They're kind of odd, but you can just squirt sealant in straight into the, the, uh, wheels without having to do any kind of anything. If you don't believe me, I've done it. (laughs) And I just did it for the first time. The other day when Kai and I went out to um, mountain bike to pre-ride the mountain bike course out there and I was like, man, I haven't ridden my mountain bike in a few months. It's been over the summer and also it's probably been a year since I put sealant in my, uh, in my tires. So I'm going to put sealant in my tires and I thought uh, I was going to have to do the... Um, regular thing you know like unscrewing the valve cores and i was like oh yeah these don't have valve cores and again this is on my mountain bike and i was like well I'm, i think i saw that thing where you could just squirt sealant right in and i was like i'm gonna try this so i tried it and it worked it was crazy just like other tires you have to like uh, let all the air out first that way it's not fighting against the resistance of that and then you just squeeze sealant and it went right in oh and then another upside is usually when you blast on a new rim a uh, new <laughs> new rim. When you blast on a new tire onto your rim, usually you have to remove the valve core of a Presta valve. That way, you get enough air airflow through this through the uh, through the hole for it to blast on a a uh, tire. 
Um, nope, don't need to do it. With these, you can just blast on a tire. And it's like, that's so crazy. And I proved that because I got some more of these and decided to put them on my gravel bike because I'm tired of fiddling with leaky valves and whatever on my gravel bike. And I was like, dude, they're $50, man. I don't know. And there is another brand which sells them for like 35 or something like that. And they're called 76 is 76 something. I forgot. And the only reason I didn't get them is because the only place you can buy them is on 76 whatever's website. They're not on Amazon. They're not anywhere else. And that's fine. That's their business choice. Uh, they do come in cool colors like blue and green and red and stuff. And I like that. Um, the blue ones look really cool. But, um, and the Fillmore's only come in black. But I was like, I, I wanted them now because I was having problems now and I have Amazon Prime. And there is no discount on Amazon though for the Fillmore's, you know, they're not selling them for cheaper. It's the same price, $50. And also I know that my, the Fillmore's work and the 76 is have a slightly different design where instead of the trombone uh, design inside the rim uh, design, I guess that's patented maybe. And they put a widened chamber that's kind of the width of the trombone, like in the body of the valve stem outside of the room. So the, it, it's, it's skinny and then it gets fat. And I think that's where they put the valve in there. And then the wider valve and then they and then it gets uh, narrow back down to a narrow uh, link uh, thing again body and then to the tip and a traffic jam wasn't so bad so I got these things in my um, in my wheels and this would be the first time that I personally uh, blasted on a tire with with the uh, Fillmore valves in there and because I think when I got them put on my mountain bike, like I had to shop to it because I was having them do something else at the same time. You know, I, I like to batch like a whole bunch of work. Like, hey, can you, I just did this the other day. I had them do something and then had them switch out a, a shifting cable on my gravel bike. I forgot what the other thing was. Oh, I got a new chain put on. But anyway, I was like, and there's no way this, this tire is going to go on without removing, you know, a valve core or whatever, I'm going to need an industrial pump to put this thing on. Especially because I did not clean the rims of my wheels and I did not clean the bead of the tires. So it's dirty. So lots of air can leak out, you know. But no, I, and I've got a Bontrager blaster pump, you know, where you pump it up to 160 PSI or something crazy. And then you flip a, and it's got a big chamber on it. And then you flip a lever and then it blasts air out super fast. And it works pretty great. Um, so if you did that to a normal normal pressed valve, uh, you would have to remove the valve core. And then when you blast the tire on, um, if it works, then you put your you pull the pump head off, and then you put your finger over the uh, pressed valve to stop air from coming out because there's no valve in there anymore. You put your finger over the pressed body, and then uh, then. You take your finger off and try to screw in the valve core as fast as you can. You've lost like almost all your air pressure, but at least the tire's on the bead, hopefully. And <laughs> no, you don't have to do that with these. And so when you add up all the time that it saves, 
it's and all the hassle because i'm thinking about it i have on my mountain bike wheels i i'm at races and i'm at um practices with kai's old uh, high school team or riding with a buddy or something like that and i see them messing with tire valves trying to air up their tires and and, and when they are up their, their, their tires you're know, having to pump kind of hard and then and pump a lot and then when they um then also there's like leaky valves and valves that aren't, aren't working right and i'm just mine's just effortless all in one simple design change just effortless and i'm like and no problems ever it's crazy like how good these things are so these get an 11 out of 10 for me and you okay we'll, we'll knock down the 10 out of 10 because they're they're expensive but they get an 11 out of 10 and the fact that they have hidden features besides the valves not clogging the fact that you can blast tires on without having to remove valve cores you can put sealant in without having to remove valve cores and so on and so forth the one thing that i'm curious about is they do come in different lengths and what do you do if you need a valve extender and what do you do if yeah the valve i think there's three different lengths of them but what if you have a length that's not you know deep enough long enough for our deep deep racing wheels that we usually have in triathlon because the situation i'm talking about is gravel bikes and mountain bikes and they typically they don't have rims anywhere near as deep okay that's it i'm at the hizzle be right back i'm gonna try on kai's old red camelback see if it fits me all right i am running with the river on a long run thanksgiving morning and i am having a an awesome time Basically, what I'm doing is I ran downhill, net downhill, probably like a mile and a half, two miles, to a big subdivision where, let's pause so I can talk, a significant portion of it, two-thirds of it, is flat, like almost Houston flat. And then it has asphalt roads and it's asphalt roads are kind of very slightly domed so I can move all over the place. It's chip seal, which is awesome for running. And then it's not curbing gutter. So the ditch, you know, it just turns to grass and into the ditch. And the, the subdivision is really, really big houses. Okay, I think we can start running again. I've caught my breath. You ready? So what I'm going to do is run a huge part. I don't know how big it's going to be yet of my two, two and a half hour run in the subdivision where it's level, flat. The road surface is just the best because it's never, I can choose what side of the road I want to run on because they don't have any traffic in the subdivision. I just saw the first car in about 10 minutes. And there's all the green space in the world. Oh, we're stopping the smell of mailbox. Great, let's go. There's all the green space in the world for him to go side to side. He's on the 15 foot or 20 foot. I think it's 15 retractable leash that's tied to my waist 
with a quick release so I can pull them in quickly if a car comes. I'm only averaging 10 and a half minute mile, but that's because, like, here comes a car. Let's unclip. There we go, like that. And let's let this car go by. This is the busiest street in the subdivision. It's not saying much. Come on, dude. Let's go. Oh my God. I just went three feet. This is Thor. <laughs> These runs are like one third for me and two thirds for him, apparently. I would kind of like to flip that at some point. He is a half German Shepherd, so I should be able to train him out of this. The constant stopping and sniff. But he's a house dog and I want him to get out and smell stuff. Okay. I'm 40 minutes in, by the way. And. Even though it was downhill at first, it was a little slow at first because I'm trying something new, sort of new. I mean, I've done versions of this in the past. Come on, come on. Oh my God. Um, I'm running with a two liter Camelback, but instead of the older Camelback, it's got all kinds of pockets and weird stuff on it. The old Camelback Lobo. This one's, I think it's just the classic. So it's smoother and more compact. Okay, come on, we're going. And but it does hold two liters, which is a ton of water. So what is that? It's easily four pounds plus probably four and a half of fluid. And that is a lot of weight to be carrying on you. But it's working. So if you cinch it down tight enough, you could get, I know you actually want, you know, stuff with pockets on the front, all that, but in a pinch, this works. This is nice. But starting off running with two liters of water on your back is uh, a little, a little much. <laughs> At first, the shock. Until you learn how to run with it. You learn to run smoother. So it doesn't bounce as much. Which ends up being good for you anyway. Sometimes when river stops, I'm like, I'm glad. We've been going uphill, you know. I'm like, okay. And I have a three-hour fuel bottle where I put it into a gel flask. He's stopping to smell something. So a little bit of Gatorade powder, a little bit of, uh, or a lot of table sugar for about 200 calories an hour, I think. And I've got that in a gel flask and it's just in my hip pocket. And I started off running. It was 45 degrees, let's say, 42. The swim that I talked about earlier, dude, we are never gonna get anywhere. <laughs> oh my God. The swim I talked about earlier. Let's go, dude, come on. It was 39 degrees. Huh. Let's go. And, but anyway, I've talked before about start off your run 
with a little more clothes than you know you're going to need. And then you start off nice. And it takes the edge off of starting running. It makes starting running fun and comfortable because you're not miserable freezing waiting to warm up. He wants to inspect this ditch. And then you're like, well, what do I do with the extra clothes? Well, you shed them. The, uh, the gear I use actually got started with cycling. Um, thin arm warmers, not real arm warmers that have fleece on the inside, but ones that don't have fleece. And I've got white ones from Primal Wear that have tattoo print all over them. They're kind of cool. And they're white and uh, have crazy designs all over, which helps cars see you. And then if you go to a sports store and get the thinnest gloves, they're like, oh yeah, they're called glove liners. By glove liners, what they do is they wick away sweat. They're super cheap, black and thin. Chickens or something like that. Maybe a turkey too? There's a turkey? There's a turkey. Hey, on Thanksgiving. Look at that. Oh, it's Thanksgiving, by the way. Oh, shit. What oh, a big boy. And until it gets below freezing or near freezing, these gloves are great. Oh, hey, hey, y'all be nice. Be nice. There's one of those Shiba dogs, whatever it's called, the Japanese dogs you see all the time. Okay, come on. He was just checking you out. There you go. All right, let's go. I don't think they see runners a lot in this neighborhood because it's off people's radar, but it is incredible for running. It's just a little difficult for me to get here because I have to go down a section of a feeder road, access road for a freeway for like 100 yards. Bottleneck. I did 14 miles last weekend. It's my long run. I'm not sure I want to do that today because I got a five hour ride with Kai tomorrow and it's going to be hilly on purpose. But him coming back from San Marcos, it's not going to be hilly for him. It's going to be hilly for me. little downhill here very gentle one percent grade let's do this there's a thing if you record a lot or you're talking a lot to other runners um you'll forget to fuel and drink like you should so let's make sure we do that i'm uh 45 minutes in need to drink the appropriate amount of fuel for that that looks about right okay come on let's go And then in my Camelback, I've got two liters. 
of water. And what's cool, it's colder weather. Dude, this is the slowest run ever. Oh my gosh. It's gonna be the title of this podcast. What he does is, oh, I, I figured out something. If we run down the same street twice, you know, like we do an out and back, he doesn't stop and sniff again. Then we get some good distancing. But the route I'm doing now, I was going to do a big loop, but now I'm kind of thinking about doing an out and back. Because if he's already been on that street just a few minutes ago, he doesn't stop and sniff everything because he already did. He just jogs past it. Anyway, with the camelback, it's nice and easy. A half a teaspoon of sodium citrate powder has about five, six hundred milligrams of sodium in it, electrolyte. That's what you need per liter, at least. And with two liters of water and cold temps, and I can run a long time. So you have to keep in your mind for trail running, ultras. You can't compare your run times and your pace with, um, with running regular street. No, we're not going that way. That's somebody's house. And because you're carrying more stuff, especially if you're on trails, you're carrying more stuff so you're slower. And you're going to go a longer distance, so it's okay to be slower. But also because you carry more stuff, it's harder. So it's slower. So it's all right if you're used to running like a nine-minute mile. You're carrying two liters of water starting off, you know, to be running a nine-and-a-half-minute water. Or mile, nine-and-a-half-minute mile. And then... The cool thing is, unclipping, there's a Jeep coming. That's the second car the whole time I've been recording. The cool thing is, as you go, it's not going to be two liters of water the whole time. It's going to get lighter. Yeah, let's check this out. One interesting thing uh, that I figured out is I'm not doing it today because I'm carrying two liters of water and there is no water along this route. Except I did see there's a volunteer fire station and they have a spigot on the side. So I think in an emergency, I could do that. Also crossed my mind. Here we go. Also crossed my mind, like the Heiko race, the gravel low coast. Oh shoot, I forgot to stop my watch. Dang it, that's gonna mess up my pay. Yeah, that's all right. When you plug stuff into Strava, when you're done, it can, uh, there's an option where you can have it like smooth out your run and it takes a lot of that crap out of there. 
on, come on. And then, and it's okay to penalize myself a little bit. All this stopping is giving me a little bit of extra speed, a little bit of rest built in. But my next iron baby, I could use it to raise charity for a volunteer fire department. That would be cool. I've done a lot of work for them, just in work work, because I do mapping for work and public safety stuff. But then, maybe I'd have to call it Fire Baby, or Iron Fire, Fireman, ooh, Firefighter, to be appropriate. We got our first runner coming up, fully wearing jacket, long pants. It's about 50 degrees. As a bigger guy, I don't need as many clothes because I get hot. This is a huge street. Well, maybe I will run it. It's got a long uphill on it. I was debating not doing it. But maybe I will. I was going to run up it until it got difficult turn around and come back. But my watch has a map on it. Ooh, I, could, I can turn this into a little bit of a loop. I can cut over. Let's do that. Good idea. <laughs> you ready? Let's go. I'll take the edge off this hill. Or I could do it and add more distance in. I don't know. I guess we'll see. We'll keep going. This guy mowing his yard. He's riding more. But people I was showing at work buying sodium citrate. And I keep a metal. half teaspoon thing with it and I just scoop out half teaspoon for every liter of water and a lot of times I have to guess a little bit but it's okay there's a car Rupert Smith in a mailbox oh I was going uphill wasn't I you know what though if I do this hill and fold it in this run will be at least, no, maybe not at least, but close to two hours. Let's do it. Okay. For ultra running, besides your little intervals and stuff you mix in, you don't need to run at a really fast pace. You need to practice and get good at the pace that you're going to do on race day. And those are slow. 
but you should run a little bit faster. You know, to encourage your body to be better. It's a tiny bit faster than your race pace goal. And then when you do your race pace, it'll feel easy. Because <laughs> then when it gets long, the back end of the race, that easy ain't going to feel easy anymore. So it'll be nice to have that under your belt. Up over here and take a sniff. Got a little a few cars on this road. Where Emily's family's from in uh, Pert, Texas, if they get uh, two cars happen to pass each other on the road, they call that a traffic jam. No kidding. Like it's a joke, but wow. Let's see what's over here. Oh, it's a deer deer trail. Look, there we go. The nice thing about these subdivisions with lots of trees wide open rows I think these are each house is on an acre or something and you get a come on let's go oh, here's our big uphill lots of woods to get off on the side of the road maybe discreetly relieve yourself oh this is a big hill but you know it's not so bad because we're nice and warmed up This is a big hill. That should be nice. We'll run and walk it. I come out here and do hill intervals on my bike sometimes. Oh, there's poop in the road. Somebody walking their dog. You want to check it out? No, uh-uh. That's how you get parvo, buddy. Use a little more fuel there. Okay, let's go. Come on. Come on. Come on. Let's go. There we go. That one I had to drag him. I'm like, I'm done waiting. Oh, this hill's not that bad. With this much water, I can actually do a course and not worry about having to find water along the way. And then you can create a course and go way out where you have no choice <laughs> unless somebody comes to pick you up. You have to run back. Very interesting. Hey, I made it to the to the top without it's only having to stop once, and it wasn't for me. It's for this guy. I can totally tell. There's a dark area on the pavement here. 
the chip seal. Wait, hold on, I got a sip of water. It's hard to do while I'm holding the phone. Okay. And that's some other dog's pee. And he's like, whoa, gotta mark that. Okay. On my Garmin watch, I've got a 945, I think. I didn't have the mapping feature turned on it for some reason. Well, this is the first one that has really, really good mapping on Well, my Phoenix has mapping. But the previous forerunners, like the 935, mapping sucked. But this one, this is great. So it helps me make choices. So I enabled the screen. And now I can do a really great route. Wow, I thought that hill was going to be too much. But it is perfect. And I just added a lot of distance to this run. Okay, so I'm doing a big lollipop. Okay, let's go. Let's go. Come on. Here, let's go. There's a lady coming. Huh? Is that mom? It's not, but you don't know that. We had friends that used to live in that house. It's kind of fun. Cruising in the neighborhood. It's cool on this watch, maybe the Phoenix too. You can put two data fields on top of the map. It's like floating over the lower half of the map. And this one, I've got time and distance. Really helpful, like for gravel racing and stuff where you gotta really know where you're at and you don't have hands-free to be changing data fields or screens all the time. So the other day, I started getting a little bit of a hot spot jogging shorts rubbing between my legs it's unusual I think because I'm losing weight clothes don't fit like they did before I just get random issues like this but one of the things I showed my friend that's getting into this it's so easy to do is carry a thing of Vaseline lip therapy. I just need to find a spot where there's nobody gonna see me work on my junk. And I'm between a bunch of houses and I just heard some kids. So let's, let's keep going. So it's Vaseline, right? With healing uh, stuff in it, which is nice as well. I think we can go this way. No, let's go down here. This is going to be our loop. I'll find a spot over here. 
and I've got it in my fanny pack. Oh, that, I think that was the last thing I was going to talk about. And one person I was talking to, I was teaching this to two people. She said, oh, we got lots of body glide and stuff. We got more body glide. And I don't think I got it through to her because I was trying to do several things at once, showing all the stuff. But it's like, I'll tell y'all. <laughs> this is not for before you run. We have all your body glide and stuff, you know, at your house. This is for while you're on your run, which is ultra marathoning. You're out there a long time and with lots of stuff. While you're on your run, you know, three hours in, you start to get a hot spot. And what's nice, I think this is a good spot. I can stop right here. No one will see me. What's nice is you're carrying something that weighs just grams clipped in where is it boy scout tip always put stuff in the especially first aid stuff in the exact same spot every time that way you can find it that way when you're half passed out or it's dark you can tell somebody else where it is there's no digging around like i think it's in this no dude it is in the front pocket of this one thing okay hold on okay we're set let's start running again One downside of Vaseline stuff, petroleum jelly, is if it's, or, where's the mic, where's, what downside of the petroleum jelly stuff is if it's cold outside, it doesn't want to squeeze out of the thing. I've noticed that over the past couple of runs, I'd forgotten that since last winter. So now I'm running with it in the palm of my hand in my glove. I should warm it up in case whatever I just put on doesn't work. Oh, shoot. Forgot to turn it on. <laughs> Forgot to turn on my watch. Okay. I didn't go that far. So Vaseline lip therapy. It's so easy to find, too. You just go on your way to your event. You just go to a gas station. Go inside. Because you remember... That you forgot it. And you're like, oh, shoot, I need some of that. On your way, let's go grab some. And probably buy, I think you can buy them in two and three packs and stuff. Buy it. Put them all over the place. I keep one in my running fanny pack, one in the bento box on my bike. There's probably one in my camelback too. The one I'm not wearing right now. My old one. Where does this road come out? Okay. I could take this long way. Let's do that. Let's go this way. Now back. Oh, it's a lifesaver, right? And you put it on a hot spot before it gets bad. You start to notice a hot spot, it's worth it. 
to treat it immediately because if what you're doing has already caused it to get bad enough where it hurts or is alarming you it ain't gonna get better so you don't wait for it to get really bad like delay it like oh man. at the next aid station three miles down the road <laughs> no I just do it now all these people are doing turkey trots maybe on this on this one on Strava I'll call this a, a river trot my personal Thanksgiving run oh river just wrapped himself around a mailbox I've mostly trained that out of him. He doesn't do that very well. Okay. Come on. You want to go this way? Come on. Anyway. What was the other thing? Oh, last thing. So the fanny pack has a little bit of nice space in it. So in that... Start off with it empty. But... I'm running with thin arm warmers and thin gloves and sometimes a thin wind blocker cycling vest where they're like solid on the front and mesh on the back. Real, real thin. Definitely the arm warmers and the gloves I can put in the fanny pack. No problem. And then get them out of the way. And then all that extra crap I started off with isn't annoying. Okay. Oh. I think we're going to get off the mic here because I'm pretty much done talking about stuff. And I'm about to get on a road with a little bit more cars. And I need both hands to hold River's leash and do other stuff. Okay? Been nice talking with y'all. I'll come back and say how far I went. We'll find out. All right, we're done. Two hours. I only around 11 miles. I only average barely under 11 minute mile, like a 10.52 or something. But actually, when I get inside and Strava it, it'll smooth it out. And I think it'll probably be faster and longer. But the goal was two hours. And well, I was going to do like two and a half. And then um, I started thinking with that five-hour bike ride tomorrow, it'd be a bad idea because Kai's got the day off, so he'll be fresh. And let's see, I did feel plenty strong the entire way. I was having to stop and pee too much, which means I was drinking a little bit too much water. And so I quit drinking as much water and I'm feeling the backpack behind me. After a while, you get pretty good at feeling a pack behind and uh, a camelback, kind of knowing how much water's left. Still got a little bit of water left. So now I got a two hour route that I really enjoyed. And I felt uh, plenty strong along the way. And towards the end, there's times where I was hurting just a little bit. And then I would up the, the calories or take more calories and I'd feel better. And the hills weren't bothering me. But I only did, like I said, 11. And I'm used to my long run being 13, 14. So that makes sense. But river went the entire way because it's colder. And usually it's hotter. And I dump him off uh, because it's just too much. But he really enjoyed it. So uh, that might be River's longest run. 
11 miles. Somebody has parked a fancy Audi in front of my house from Houston. I wonder who that is. That's pretty. It's an S5. IS5. Anyway, uh, it's got red brake calipers on it. Anyway, we are done. About to be back in the house. I'm going to have a beer. And my job for the rest of the day is to clean up my crap, bike stuff, my desk, which people can see when they come and visit. And uh, get that all away because we're having Thanksgiving dinner tonight. Thanks for joining me on my run. All right, bye-bye. Hello. All right, we are stopped at one of my favorite stopping spots on my long bike ride. I am just over two and a half hours in. I might do five hours today. We'll see. I'm definitely doing over four. And I'm really bummed out. Kai's coach switched his training plan around so that he's going to do his five-hour ride tomorrow, not today. But I was all ready to go mentally in my mind and some of my gear. My fuel was already made up. And so I said, well, I'm just going to go ahead and do it anyway. And then I'll decide tomorrow if I want to do the five hours again with Kai. I mean, that would be pretty epic. I was planning on doing a long run tomorrow or maybe mountain biking. But if I'm going to do a long run tomorrow, I definitely need to go easy today and do more spinning instead of low gear cranking out. Low cadence, a big gear cranking out high torque and wearing myself out. So this is good practice. If you were doing a stage race or back to back to back to back, big days, training camps and such, you would actually kind of practice spinning, taking it easy. And I actually was listening to an interview with Sepp Cuss, who's from Durango, but he's the uh, guy that just won Volta España, Tour de Spain, Tour of Spain. And he, there's this interview with him from about three, four, five years ago where he had just gone big time pro. And he said that the Europeans just ride easy, like all the time. And that's what I'm going to do. So it was nice to hear that interview. I forgot the name of the podcast. It's one of the many I listen to. It's the first car I've seen on this road in like a year. <laughs> anyway. So yeah, I've got uh, my fuel bottle split up into two different bottles. Uh, I made up five hours worth of fuel, but I split it into two and I just finished the four and a half hour or the uh, two and a half hour one. And I'm going to start working on the other one. I started off with uh, some cold weather gear. And as I'm going along, I'm kind of stuffing it in pockets. And I've got a, a half frame bag, which is cool thing about gravel bikes is they look okay on that. I am on aero bars most of the time. And that's really nice because it's really windy today. And I just tuck into the arrow bars and it just takes the edge off of that. And also if it's cold, it helps you um, stay a little bit warmer. Anyway, the other reason I'm doing the ride, irregardless if Kai goes with me or not, is it is a beautiful sunny day. And we've had it kind of mopey the past few days. So I said, I'm going to go. And you never know what's going to happen where you might not be able to ride tomorrow or do a big day tomorrow. You got some sort of family emergency or something. Let's see. There's something else about this setup that I got going on. I am wearing uh, those lightweight ski gloves, uh, glove liners, very, very thin, lightweight, over my bike gloves. And that adds enough uh, insulation and, and whatever to keep your hands warm. And then if it gets too hot, then I take them off and I got a pair of gloves under my gloves. <laughs> Just like uh, Dumb and Dumber. Uh. But anyway, I'm going to do a, a news bit here for a second and then we're going to get back on the bike. All right, we have some very interesting triathlon news and then some GCN news. Uh, 
I saw something on Instagram yesterday that Ultraman Arizona, which I did not know existed, but it sounds awesome and kind of brutal. Well, it's in March, so it won't be that bad. Is uh, offering spots for relays. And yeah, I think it's March 26th or so. But anyway, Google Ultraman Arizona. And if you want to dip your toes into Ultraman, then you could do one of the relays uh, slots. I'll tell you what the distances are here in a second. And, uh, but be warned, once you do a relay in something, you might want to do the whole thing. And the whole thing is way harder than just one leg of the relay. Okay, so day one of an Ultraman. I've done one of these, by the way. The day one of an Ultraman is 10K swim. So 6.2 mile swim, just straight. And then day two, no, wait, you do the, you do the swim and then you get on the bike. And then you bike... 90 miles, I think. 90 something miles. Okay, so that's day one. But what's cool is you get to go back to your lodging and eat a ton of cookies <laughs> and load up on calories and put your feet up and just load up on calories. And then day two is 170 something mile bike ride. Uh, the one I did, I did 172 or something. I did mine uh, with the exact same elevation gain, I believe, as uh, Hawaii. And it got hot too. And that 172 mile bike ride is uh rough but you're on a bike so you just what i did was i just coasted everything downhill actually had a really good time i averaged almost 20 miles an hour and then day three is a double marathon not a 50 miler a double marathon so you know 52.4 or something like that miles And, you know, it's funny is you start off feeling not too bad and then it gets rough. And yeah, I did that. I did all that one time and I loved it. It was the best. And if you do an Ultraman, you are like black, double, triple black belt endurance athlete, man. It's basically a double and a half kind of Ironman over three days. And it's uh, the elite few. It's like the special, it's like the special forces of triathlon. You're like a Navy SEAL. It is crazy how hard it is and how much training it takes. But the cool thing is, is the whole time you're going, you just try to hold back and just go easy and see how fast you can go without trying. And that ends up giving you your fastest time. So that was kind of cool. And I just loaded up podcasts and music and just enjoyed the crap out of myself. Uh, Let's see. The other thing that was straightening out my rear taillight here. The other thing that was newsworthy is GCN has a sub channel. And uh, it's a huge YouTube channel um, that does, they're out of Europe and they do uh, really good uh, cycling coverage and cycling little bits and stuff, entertainment. And then like tech news and stuff like that. And they even have a sub channel for triathlon, GTN. But they had and have had for a while uh, some sort of uh, TV channel that you could watch and get on certain devices called GCN Plus. And that was the race coverage part. And basically all the big races, all the smaller races, cyclocross, everything, GCN Plus. And, and I had it briefly and then I canceled it a long time ago because it's um, geography locked or whatever it's called, where they don't show certain things in the United States. And guess what they don't show in the United States? The Tour de France. The whatever, whatever, because it conflicts with other big whatevers, uh, companies that have rights to show that in the United States. And honestly, I get all the cyclocross and stuff I want on, um, and smaller races on YouTube anyway, just watching them. 
And I didn't want to do the whole VPN changing your location and stuff so that you can see these races. It's just not worth it on um, GCN Plus region locked. That's what it's called. And so I, w- I personally wasn't using it, but apparently it's a really big deal in Europe and some other places. And really high regard as far as production goes. People loved it, but it got canceled. They, the, they just called it quits. And it doesn't make sense, except for when you think about this. GCN sold themselves out to a bigger company. And it might, it might be Outside Magazine or stuff like that. And that's the problem when you let yourself be bought by a bigger corporation as all of a sudden they're calling the shots. And the thing that you've poured your heart and soul into and you think is important, they don't give an F about. They do not care. And they will cut it, you know, because in their giant portfolio and all their shareholders, stuff like that, they, need, they want to save money and stuff. So they look for something that even though it, it's a dumb decision to do it, way up top they don't they're not as passionate about it as you are or the the smaller industry is right they're just outdoors the company that owns them is all this outdoor stuff so they're not as passionate about showing this narrow niche cycling stuff and yeah they cut it and man it's got to hurt for the people that uh run gcn and they gotta be thinking twice about why they sold themselves out you know to um the bigger corporation whatever it is corporations that own them now to get screwed over by this but it's also why some comp- some people go back and buy their companies back from the bigger corporations. That's happening. There's something in the news recently where they're doing that, where a big corporation was pretty much ruining a small company that they bought out. And then the, uh, the previous president, whatever's rich, comes in and buys it back so they can turn it back on the way it was supposed to be. <sighs> All right, I'm going to get started on finishing, get started on finishing the rest of my ride here. And uh, we'll get back to the show, and maybe there'll be some more news here, or maybe not. We'll find out. Here we go. So right after I started biking again, I remembered the things <laughs> that I was going to talk about. Hopefully, I remembered them now. But it's okay, because a train went by. It would have blasted me out. Hopefully, one doesn't go by right here, because I'm standing next to railroad tracks again. They do call it College Station for a reason. The train stations. Anyway, Sepcus, Sepcus, the power that he talked about when they go easy below 200 watts like 190 watts and if you know the power these guys put out the world tour guys that is insanely low and their coach telling them to keep it below 190 watts and i've been through that kind of training myself and that's the kind of training i give when i'm trying to get somebody to go longer is you got to go easy 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 so that you can go really long and then that builds up your mitochondria and fat burning another thing was when i was riding out to here i was on the on a road that no cars on it really big and wide big shoulder and there's a guy riding horseback on the side of the road which you see in texas on occasion and i gave him a wide berth went all the way to the other side of the road and the reason you do that is because you think you just look like a cyclist a horse thinks you look like like one of those Mexican wrestlers, like a luchadora, whatever they're called, uh, that had a baby with a tiger and then dropped in from a UFO, man. They will freak out with you and your helmet on and your bright colored gear and your bike making all kinds of crazy sounds and the free wheel spinning and clicking. And you go on at 20 miles an hour, the same speed as a wolf trotting along. Man, they are, <laughs> they will buck and kick. So the guy kind of 
tipped his hat at me like, thank you. And I said, yeah, I know. It's cool. And what was the other thing? Let me think for a minute. Oh, it might be that I'm doing 300 calories an hour. Is that what it was? Well, I can't remember what it was. Next time I stop, I'll remember what it is. Let's get going. We got to get back to the house. All right, we are back at the house. Had a couple things happen. Interesting. Hold on, I'm cracking open a beer. I've actually been here for quite a while. But um, regardless of what I do tomorrow, my legs were a little blown out in a weird way, which I'll get to in a second. But uh, I figured I should put down as much uh, sugar and carbs as fast as I could when I got done because you got that window after you work out. Put glycogen back into your muscle. There's two places your body stores glycogen in your muscles and in like your liver. And let me crack open this beer here real quick. Ah, nice IPA. And I get this thing a lot of times where it's partially from mountain bike experience where, you know, it's the surging and then my legs get tired too quickly. It's like I don't have as many gears because I put down too much power. I think I talked about that before uh, too quickly. But also it feels a lot like this is, I'm not sure exactly what it is. So I'm just saying what it feels like. It's like lactic acid buildup. And then if I pause and coast for a second, it goes away. And then if I start pedaling again, then it comes back like really quickly, like within 10, 30 seconds, depending on how hard I pedal to a minute. And it's really frustrating. If anybody knows what that is, let me know. Uh, one suspicion is that my muscles are tapped out on glycogen and I'm getting glycogen uh, from you know my bloodstream and from my digestive tract because I'm putting down 300 calories an hour. And But the, the glycogen that's in your muscles stored in there is just tapped out. And the trick is to plump those back up as soon as you can uh, when you get done with a bike ride or run. And I mean, it could make sense. I do so much uh, running and biking that you know I'm not replenishing enough with carbs after right after a workout for the glycogen to go to the muscles where it needs to go instead you know i drink a beer or i just sit around and not do much for a while and by the time i put glycogen back in it goes to uh more to my liver than the, the muscles which have quit acting like sponges ready for more i guess i'm not sure exactly what's going on and it, again it's really bizarre because i could keep pedaling all day like i did this started you know about two hours into my ride um, no, about two hours left of a five-hour ride. And this happens to me quite a bit lately, over the past couple of years, actually. And all I have to do is just coast for a second, and then I feel fine. And then I pedal again, and then it's gone. The energy's gone again. And then it feels like lactic acid burn, like in your legs, in my legs, so bad that I got to stop again. And then I pause. All I do is coast for a second. <sighs> and then I can... And then I can uh, start pedaling again with all the strength of before, but then it quickly starts hurting so bad I got to coast again. It's really weird and really frustrating. And it doesn't happen all the time. So today I finished today's ride with <laughs> a sandwich, a Dr. Pepper, a real Dr. Pepper with uh, you know real sugar in it and some chips and dip. But you know, the bread and the sandwich and that Dr. Pepper with sugar is going to um, go straight to the muscles. So hopefully that'll help for whatever I do tomorrow. And one thing I do after a lot of workouts is I reward myself with an IPA. I'm a grown-ass man, and I feel like that's fine. And I'm losing weight, so I'm, I'm cool with it. I have, a, I have a curiosity that 
is there something with not Coors Light beer, you know, like it's basically rice water, but real beer like an IPA? I wonder if the alcohol in that blocks absorption of carbs of of glycogen into the muscles. I mean, when you look on it, it says it's got so many calories in it, right? And you figure that it's it's carbs, but it's not exactly. Alcohol is actually a different kind of carb. And I think it might go to your, your liver, right? Well, I know that. It goes to your liver predominantly. So I'm not sure. That might have something to do with it. Any of you food scientists out there have that idea? Um, you know, yeah, I know it's bad to drink a beer after a workout instead of like a recovery drink. That's what I should actually do is drink a recovery drink after a workout and see if the next one is... Um, is uh, that that weird thing kind of goes away? But anyway, besides all that, something interesting happened during the ride. Uh, well, I also keep forgetting to mention that it rained yesterday, and maybe a little bit overnight, just a tiny bit. And that's a great time. River scratching his neck. That's a great time to go for a gravel ride because it calms down the dust. And I got passed by a few cars on the gravel today, and unlike usual. You know, when I first saw them coming, I was like, oh, crap. Uh, but it, was, it wasn't much dust at all. It was kind of nice. And then, oh, that reminds me. I need to wash my bike real quick. And then the other thing was, I always do four-hour rides, and I'll split up the bottles, maybe into two bottles, but definitely, you know, always at least one bottle, but maybe two. And today I was going for a five-hour ride, and somehow I got my my proportions wrong on how much... I had drank, uh, especially because I was doing two bottles, and now it's like uh, two and a half bottles by half of the ride. Or yeah, a bottle, uh, <laughs> one bottle uh, by half of the ride, and see, I can't even get it straight in my mind right now. And then I moved some fluid to another bottle to kind of, I don't know what I was doing. Anyway, I realized when I stopped one time, like the third time I was having to pee, and I wasn't feeling all that like energetic, that... I actually wasn't drinking. I was behind my calories by like almost an hour's worth. And I was three and a half hours into my five-hour ride. Maybe maybe almost four hours into my five-hour ride. And I was behind by like an hour. And I was like, oh, okay. So pro training tip here. If you're having to pee a lot while doing a long bike ride or a really long run, a lot of times what that is is you're low on blood sugar, you're not fueling enough, and you're plenty hydrated, to the point of where your body starts trying to uh, discharge water to concentrate the blood in your blood sugar and concentrate the, <laughs> the sugar in your blood. And then, you know, what, what it does, yeah, if you, if you get rid of fluids and then what's left is sugar, well, now your blood has more sugar per, per cubic centimeter or whatever than it did before because you got rid of some water. The body's really smart like that. It's pretty cool. It's... It's like you're too diluted in blood sugar. You don't have enough, so I'm going to get rid of water. So if that's what's happened to you, you got to look to see how much carbs and fuel you've been taking in and make sure it's been the right amount and up it. And so I did. I upped it. What I, <laughs> what I did was I have gummy bears, no, uh, gum, sour gummy worms in my frame bag, and I grabbed a fistful of them. I don't know. It was probably like six. And they're also like half size, so... Maybe, yeah, six to eight. Uh, and they're sour gummy worms. And I didn't know exactly yet that I was, I hadn't drank enough fuel, liquid fuel. I thought I was just down, period, on carbs. So I put a bunch of them in my mouth, started eating them. And then I started, while I, I was going to do that, while, while, and continue riding, and then look at my bottle situation while I'm riding. You know, always make time. And 
was like, as I'm riding along, I'm like, dude, I am behind on my fueling. What was I doing? What, how did I get off so bad? And I'm sitting there chewing this huge mouthful of gummy worms, which tasted great. And uh, uh, the, the sweet and sour and the, the texture of them, it's just so good. And to eat something solid. And I want to be careful and not catch up on the fuel so fast because I just ate a whole bunch of gummy worms. And I could end up getting sick to my stomach by doing too much sugar at once. But that cured it. Uh, I got back on my schedule and tried to finish the rest of the, the fuel bottle by the time I hit almost five hours. And also the fistful of gummy worms, it all evened out to be the exact uh, right amount. And I quit having the need, stopping the need to pee problem. I had good energy the rest of the way. I just had that weird like pedal, stop pedal thing. It's weird. But also I think it takes longer for blood sugar to saturate your muscles than it does to saturate everything else in your body. So I wonder if like you get depleted and you're playing catch up, you know, and you don't really know you're behind, but you're behind, you know, on glycogenating your uh, muscles like you should. Anyway, I got in 78 something miles, uh, four hours and 45 minutes, a lot of it gravel. So it ended up being over 16 miles an hour. But, um, Really, 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 really good ride. And yeah, I'm trying to carb up because if I do, I just executed today what would be need to what needed what would need to be done tomorrow if I ride with Kai. And let me look at the weather real quick. So basically I know exactly what gear to wear, if the weather's the same. Yeah, I think the weather's gonna be uh, almost identical. That's gonna be a little bit warmer. That's still going to be cold. It was 44 this morning. No, 41. And then it'll be 45 tomorrow, but it's going to get warmer. Yeah, so I got all the gear. I know how many calories I need. And then there's a little bit of that factor of like, man, if I do back-to-back five-hour days, that's pretty badass. (laughs) And that's one of the things that motivates me in endurance sports is doing stuff that is surprisingly like yeah, like surprisingly difficult and a challenge and surprisingly awesome, like to myself, then I have like this, I wouldn't call it a runner's high, but I have like, it's kind of like a runner's high for a few days of like, man, everything's fine because I did something really badass like on Tuesday. So all the way through like Thursday, I'm like, man, I'm badass, dude. That is cool. So I carry myself a little bit better. I'm a little bit happier. It has nothing to do with anybody else. Nobody else needs to know, but uh, it's all just like for me, I've noticed that overcoming a challenge would be um, and it has to be like a significant enough challenge for it to matter where uh, it really like helps me and it makes me feel great. Um, I would I noticed it for sure when I would go surfing and I would go down to the beach and I would surf and I'd surf like three hours straight. And, you know, surfing's really, really hard and it's really dangerous and uh, especially where I was sur- where I like to surf, there's like no lifeguards or anything. There's tons of sharks, and I get rolled a lot. I'm I'm okay at surfing, so I crash a lot, wipe out, and I just get worn out. And it's it's kind of scary, you know, to paddle out by yourself. And then I got to drive there and drive back, and I really feel like I accomplished something um, pretty amazing. That in where I live is like pretty rare <clears throat> because I live like two hours from the coast, and I don't need to tell anybody that I went and did it. I just did it. And 
uh, I'll notice that for like three days, I'll have like a surfer's high. Just like, man, I did something really cool is what I guess it, it comes from. But like, it's kind of like, um, like dopamine, endorphins, uh, serotonin, where you're just kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, that's nice. That's nice. That's pretty badass. And it just might happen that if I do two days back to back, five hours, that I might be like, dude, that is badass. The only person that would really know is y'all listening, but y'all don't live with me. I don't see y'all every day. And then um, also like to impress Kai, Kai would be like, damn. <laughs> the thing is, is I'm almost certain that I will not perform great tomorrow because I just biked five hours today and my legs were a little bit depleted. So to turn around and go do it again would be, um, I worry that doing that would hold Kai back and I wouldn't be able to keep up at the speed that he wants to as if I was fresh, then it wouldn't be a problem. Especially because the route that we want to take, if we do it, is really hilly. And if it was flat to um, just nicely gentle rolling, I can easily keep up with Kai. Um, but when it starts getting vertical, he's his uh, the weight to power, power to weight ratio starts really working against me. And that kid obviously can climb and just drop me pretty quick. But if we were like on level ground and just riding together, it's happened a million times. Uh, he's got no hope. Because <laughs> I can get an arrow position and just crank out watts, you know, like a bigger guy naturally has bigger watts. And then your weight doesn't really matter so much because you're on level ground. But um, yeah, when it gets rolling, then we got all another situation going on. Oh, I was going to make sure that the gas station's open tomorrow so we can get water. And actually, I got to run some errands. We need fuel. I need to go buy some sugar. We're almost out. And there is something else. Anyway, that's about it. Everybody hang tight. Be right back. Oh, one last thing. I'm out front now, uh, getting ready to wash my bike. Just the drivetrain, really. I'm going to rinse it off, the rest of it. But the drivetrain needs some work. And I'll explain what's up with it here in a second. Let me take this. Varia radar off just to reduce risk that it gets water in it. Marginal gains <laughs> don't just apply to speed, it applies to not breaking your own stuff. One last thing I wanted to mention was the Fillmore valves. It was so cool today pumping up my bike for a ride, airing up the tires, and just the ease and confidence, like it is with my mountain bike, of just knowing that. Before I even hooked up the pump head, that this was going to be easy and there was going to be no problems with weird stuff happening with the valves. And by that, I mean, just attach the pump head, just start pumping, air goes in, <laughs> tires air up, no sticky valves, nothing. It just worked like a charm. Oh, it was so great. It's like a dream. One less thing to worry about. All right, let's clean this drivetrain. Oh, so I got a new chain put on. And with the new chain, you know, I asked Kai, because uh, he used to work at the bike shop, are they going to strip the, the grease off the chain? He goes, nope, nope, no bike shop ever does that. The packing oil that comes with it, that's terrible. And so the very first thing I did when I got home was I put soapy water on the drivetrain, on the on the chain and the and the cogs. And got a little bit wet, let it soak for a little bit. And then, what did I do? I scrubbed it, right? And that's definitely not going to get all the grease off, but it's a start. And then I uh, let it dry, and then I put wax on it immediately. 
I'm not going to spend forever like uh, taking the chain and and um, uh, disassembling it and then doing all the scrubbing to get the old packing grease off. Um, we're not going to, you know, add regular lube to it, but we're just going to use soap and ride it a little bit with it wet and let the soap work its way into the grease. And then also with a little bit of wax in there to kind of help things start getting ready for wax, I guess. I don't know if that really helps or not. And then I did one ride like that and with like soap in the chain to start breaking up that grease, but also with wax in there too. And then, and I use um, squirt uh, wax lube. And then after the ride, uh, scrub down the chain and the drivetrain and then um, with soap and cleaned it a little bit. And it seems like all the grease is gone, but we'll see. And this is the third time I'm doing it with soap. Yeah, I think it's stripped. Yeah. So I'm going to soap it now. And, um, oh, it's totally stripped. Wow. That's nice. Good job, Brett. And after I let it dry um, with the soap and scrubby here, then I'm going to put wax on it. I think that's done. That's the easiest way to do it. No drama. All right. I just realized my rear skewer was pointing downwards instead of back to be arrow. Oh my God. That's like a watt right there. There we go. Out there. I'm going to get it just right. There we go. Oh. Roadies point their skewers inward. So they point towards the uh, bottom bracket, front and back. And that's to keep them from being uh, knocked loose when they're riding in a tight pack. That's the reason why. That's the only reason why. Triathletes, if you're a long-distance, uh, non-drafting-style triathlete, or if you like to ride not in dense packs with people, you don't have to do that. You can point your, your uh, skewers backwards. Both of them backwards, not just the front. But level with the ground, pointing backwards, and then that is the most arrow position. That's both of them together, it's probably a couple watts. Yeah! All right. Now this bike needs to dry off. Let's go inside. All right, it is Saturday morning and I've made a huge mistake and I'm going to try to bike with Kai five hours after I biked five hours yesterday. <laughs> I figured I'd try to do something epic since I got Sunday to recover and it's really great to be able to bike with him. I don't know how many times you ever get that in life, so left and it's cold. Um, already he wants to know a route so that when he drops me, he knows the rest of the way home. <laughs> so this will be fun. Here we go. You about ready, home salad? Yeah, I was going to put it back on. I was testing it out for a run. Now you're all floppy. Oh, man. It's going to cause, that's two watts of drag right there. And you're riding with a uh, a thing on the front of your bike. What is that called? That you won. Snack or bag. we bought it. a snack bag. And then like Kai Industries or Kai Kai Venture Bags. Kai Venture Bags, a homemade bag company. It's awesome. So that's going to slow you down. So I'm 100% uh, in favor of this. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. All right. You ready? Did you pump up? Dude, you're, you're running street tires. Jesus Christ. Hey. I'm so screwed. Okay. All right. <laughs> All right, let's go. 
Okay, I'm about to roll over 13.1 miles. I did it. That's not it. <laughs> it was something else. Fueling timer. A half marathon the day after doing that ride with Kai. 87 miles. Almost. Almost. There we go. Okay. Stop. Wow. Please, God, don't keep the pool closed. I want to swim instead of doing all this. Holy crap. Big numbers started on Thanksgiving morning, ran 11.4 miles. River went with me the whole way, that was awesome. And then Friday, 78 miles, gravel mix, just kind of putting around, five hours. No, it was almost five hours, it was close. And then try to shield the mic here Saturday the next day not 78 but 87 miles gravel mix of way more elevation gain riding with Kai five hours on the dot almost beat him back to the house he dropped in a time trial at the very end last few minutes and I couldn't keep up and then today just to be psycho think <laughs> a half marathon 13.1 so I did the same 11.4 miles with river and then added what is it though 1.7 or something I don't know but it's right went out and back to get 13.1 and it's cold I brought uh, two uh, kind of chewy little granola bars with me to have some solid food along the way, and I enjoyed it. It was actually pretty great. And I was just shocked at, oh man, I'm causing dog problems. They're barking. I was just shocked at how I actually ran faster today than uh, Thursday, even though I biked like 150 miles plus 160 in between so i'm super stoked i had a moment many moments today while running thinking i'm back i averaged just over a 10 minute mile which isn't all that fast but that's pretty good for running with the dog and carrying a bunch of water and on quote-unquote tired legs you know if you want to run an ultra marathon you can't run an ultra marathon in training so what you do is you run on tired legs to make yourself learn that you can keep going. So I was doing kind of the fireman shuffle there towards the, well, the whole thing today, but it's not that slow. Like I said, 10 and a, like 10, 15 minute mile. And uh, lots of little hills and stuff like that. My goal, you know, is to someday do the uh, 
Rocky Raccoon again and all that stuff. Uh, actually, sooner than later. And also an Iron Man. And um, what I did the past few days has been the result of a very cautious and awesome buildup to just being durable and being able to run a lot. I finally feel like I, like I've I've made it back to where I want to be. And then once you're there, then it's no more building. It's like uh, it's just maintaining. And so now I can just be like real casual about it and go out and run long. <laughs> this is my theory. Just go out and run long here, long there, a little here, a little there. Just kind of keep an eye on the overall mileage. Um, and then the speeds will keep increasing. And I'm happy. I'm super, super happy. Wow. Wow. Whew. Okay. I'm going to go inside and uh, eat some pancakes. Oh, and I got to talk about Kai's. I think I'll record that and throw that in before this. Me riding with Kai <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> it was awesome. I didn't really have time to do it yet. So I'll do that. Okay. Out. Bing. All right. Let's do a little review of the bike ride with Kai. I survived, I actually did really well. And it's a testament to, um, come on, Zoe, let's go inside. No, Zoe, 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 go, go inside. The Ironman style of training where you have to do back-to-back training days and each training day needs to be pretty good so you need to know how to recover. And then when I did Ultraman, which is back-to-back three monstrous days, each getting worse than the next, <laughs> I guess. Then um, I actually really enjoyed doing that. It seemed like I had a knack for it. I do not have a leaning or want towards doing like a 10-day Ironman, you know, like 10 Ironmans in a row or something. I think, hey, there's at some point where it's just like undoable. It's abusive towards your body. It may not be smart. Like recently in the triathlon news, there was a lady that did like a DECA Ironman or 20 Ironmans or something. And like she broke her arm and then kept going. <laughs> it's like, dude, you're doing permanent damage, man. Although it was very, it was inspirational, but oh my God. I draw the line at doing permanent damage to the body. I think a certain amount of exercise is actually good for the body. This thing where they say that running wears out your knees and all that, that's actually been proven to not exactly be true, that you need to run to keep your legs healthy and strong. And one of the best things for your body is running. And so if you run just gently and soft, you're fine. And you cut it short before you um, hurt, and then just don't go so far that you get hurt. Okay, I don't know why I'm talking about all that. Let's get on with this bike ride. So uh, knowing that it could be really bad trying to keep up with Kai, I finished... The solo bike ride I did, where I did 78 miles for five hours, I finished that feeling depleted, uh, pretty worn out. And I mean, I felt great, but like, you know, your best workouts is where at the very end, you are toast. That's a great workout, but right at the very end, you know, and the, it's like your best race is one where you explode as you're going over the finish line. That's where you bonk. <laughs> blow up and, and have to collapse. That's that's how you know you gave it your all. But anyway, as I finished the ride, I felt like, oh, okay, I'm done. And also my legs were doing that thing where it felt like I had no energy left in my legs and I was having to coast a little bit to get energy back in my legs before I could start again. It's really weird because if I just do that for just seconds, then I'm fine for a while. And then I think I talked about it before. It's frustrating. So what I did was I took precautions 
and I did something I haven't been doing at all lately, which I think might be something really, really smart if you are lactose tolerant, is I eat ice cream. Which also I'm doing right now. You can't hear it. I'm editing it out. I'm eating a bowl of ice cream as I talk. But I specifically went to the grocery store and bought a container, a small container, like two servings of Dutch chocolate. And our local ice cream manufacturer around here everybody loves is Bluebell. And yeah, I ate the whole freaking thing to load up. Let's see what's in ice cream. You got your protein. You've got, because it's dairy-based, you've got tons of sugar. You got fat for extra calories. It's like very, very nurturing to the body as far as uh, like a cradle. I'm like, here you go, baby. Make you feel good and plump up your muscles and with all kinds of great stuff that, that you need. And there's a little bit more to this story. I'd have to go look up the episode, but I interviewed the guy that won the age group competition at Kona one year because it was such a peculiar, funny, and cool story that I had to, I had to look him up and then find out what was going on. And the reason I did was you had your pros come across, and then the first age grouper that came across almost looked like he wasn't in the race because he was wearing a camelback. And he just kind of casually jogged across the finish line looking fine. And he was in his 20s, really young, like 20 or something like that. Really young. And <sighs> wearing a camelback for the Hawaii Ironman is not something that people do for the run. And I sent him a message and then got him on the show and asked him a whole bunch of questions. And uh, you also want to hear something weird. There's, I have an episode you can go back and listen to in the archives where I interviewed the guy that swam the English Channel, all butterfly, for example. Okay. Anyway, this uh, guy, he was from, was he from Germany or Denmark? I can't remember. But he said that he just kind of upped his hours and just did lots of bike riding and lots of running and whatever. And the, the reason behind the Camelback was it was full of electrolyte mix and he just drank it as he went along on the run. And it worked great. And <laughs> of course it did. I just thought that was such a, such an interesting way to make sure he got all of his electrolytes and, and to run a full marathon with a camelback on starting the beginning. I guess it got lighter as he went along, and it really helped. And if it was hot, if he started off with it kind of frozen, that would be really interesting. But anyway, the thing in his training that he said that he did was he ate ice cream a lot. Anytime he came across some ice cream, he'd eat some. He'd stop for ice cream breaks on his long bike rides. And it comes to my mind that I think that that was like the secret to his success, him specifically, and maybe people like him, is that's where he was getting his extra calories from that were like really healthy if you're doing ultra endurance, right? And then interestingly enough, I think he started trying to go pro. And there's this, there's this phenomenon that happens when I think he got started doing all this because he was uh, taking a break from college maybe and decided to, to you know, do the Ironman and was so good at it that uh, he, he won. And because of that, yeah, decided to go pro. And this phenomenon where people are good enough age groupers that they quit their job and they spend all their time training to, as they go pro, when they first go pro, they end up doing worse than they were when they were age groupers. I don't think he ever performed like that again. I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. And he got some kind of injuries kind of here and there, and it'd be great to catch up with him and find out how everything's worked out. But the thing that made you so great as an age grouper, part of it was the structure of having a job 
and having these commitments that you had to do and limiting your training and being really smart about your training so it was really effective. And then when people go pro and they quit and they quit their job and they have all this free time to train, then they train too much because they think more is the answer and some more is the answer maybe for some people, but a lot more and then no structure in your daily life, things kind of fall apart and they get, they get uh, injured and all kinds of things happen. But I never forgot to think about the ice cream. The ice cream was really interesting. And that's what came to my mind when I realized I had to keep up with Kai the next day. And I'm like, how do I cram my body with calories and help with recovery so that tomorrow I'm able to stay strong? And yeah, I ate a bunch of ice cream. <laughs> My favorite is chocolate, and that seemed to really work. And then also the next morning uh, when I got up to get ready for the ride, I got up, I had some coffee and my bowl of cereal, and I tend to have a small bowl of granola cereal. Small, some people might think it's kind of medium, but I'm a bigger guy, so it's like small to medium, let's say, size, S slash M size bowl of granola. And for me, that's plenty to get going in the morning and get started, and I doubled that. I finished it and I was like, you know what? I'm going to eat another one of these. So I got tons of calories for this bike ride. So I did. And when I finished that second bowl, I was full, right? And then it's still another hour or something until we leave, uh, maybe hour and a half because I was up pretty early. And uh, Kai's on college break, so he's taking his time getting up. Although we did leave at eight, eight in the morning. So then, yeah, we take off and my legs were a little um, hollow and sore, kind of, but not bad. And then we were riding long and I felt pretty great. And uh, the good thing is, is with an easy ride, uh, I've trained Kai to remember that it's a, um, the whole goal is to, to stay easy and we can't do the thing where we're always racing each other. We do that sometimes, but in general, we try not to. And we took off on this route that I came up with that goes into the hilliest part of the hills nearby. I mean, it is absolutely bonkers. Those are just little girls in the street. Do not bark at them. They're innocent little children. And sorry, the dogs have a barking problem. And then I did 325 calories per hour. I also, in two different bottles, I split up the first bottle to be a two-hour bottle and the second bottle to be a three-hour bottle. So I didn't have like these halves. That's what messed me up the day before. So I could figure out what hour I was on because, one, you know, I don't know. I don't know why it was hard. It's just, you wouldn't think so. But when you're exercising, everything needs to be like, Hey, 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 it's okay. Hey, come here. When you're exercising, everything needs to be really simple and you can't be thinking while and figuring things out. Uh, exercise, especially racing. Okay, the more you have figured out before you take off, uh, the better off you'll be. And the bike setup was like this. Kai's bike, he's got his handlebars lower than mine, relatively speaking to the saddle. His bike's one size smaller than mine. He's on a large, I'm on an extra large. But anyway, he's got his his bar's lower, so he's more arrow. He's a little bit more slam, so he's more arrow, and he's young, so he can handle that. And then mine's pretty good. I mean, my bars are definitely two, three inches lower than my saddle, but, well, not at the hoods. Maybe it's two inches. Anyway, so I, um, I'm i running a 47 semi-knobby front. It's got a slick center. It's a specialized pathfinder. It's got a slick center and then uh, knobbies on the shoulder, and then the back is a sawtooth, which is become slick in the center and then um, inverted tread on the sides. I got a 47 front and a 
42 rear non-aero rims, but I have the secret weapon, which is aero bars. And I love riding in my aero bars because it gets me practicing the aero position. And also if I'm riding sitting upright into the wind, I feel like a idiot. <laughs> Knowing that aero bars exist and I know how to ride in them, I'm like, this is dumb. I'd put them on a commuter bike if I could just to save time going to work. It just makes, you're so much faster with aero bars. It's ridiculous that they're not more common. Anyway, and, and also to ride on gravel with them, all you do is you spread out the elbow pads more than you would on a tri bike. And that gives you stability while you're in them. And you set the aero bars just a tad bit higher than you would on a tri bike. And so that wider and a little bit higher then you've got more control over the bike. You're not like so uh, precarious, like over the front of the bike and uh, gonna flip over. It works just fine. And gravel bikes have um, the fork kicked out a little bit, so they're more stable. And I've, I've yet to crash on a gravel bike in the aero bars, and I've ridden thousands and thousands and thousands of miles by now. But Kai's bike, he has race wheels, and he's riding the very finest, finest file tread uh, tires and 42s, front and rear maybe 42s and they're also um the the race wheels are uh they're not deep they're probably 40s instead of uh, a 50 centimeter deep but they're they are arrow compared to mine and they're bladed spokes too i think so he's got a faster bike in some senses and i've got a faster bike in other senses with the the arrow bars and oh we both also run uh garmin varia radars on the back which is the best absolute best tell when cars are coming and yeah, so Kai set up more like a roadie, mine set up more like a triathlete. And also I have a frame bag on mine, which actually makes your bike more aero. And you can, oh, as I was taking off my um, gilet vest and my uh, arm warmers and my gloves, you know, I can put them in the frame bag and tuck them away and be more aero. It's genius. I don't know why we don't ride these more. And definitely if I had, an, if I had a triathlon bike with a, um, a hollow frame area like that, I kind of do. I don't know if I need to put stuff in the, in the, uh, I've, oh, my, yeah, my, tri, my tri bike on purpose has the, uh, the storage container in the back. So I don't need a bunch of stuff. Anyway, what I did was I paced myself up the hills and, um, it's really funny, like in the aero position going downhill, I passed Kai. So I was, I was, um, losing him on the uphills, but then I would gain him back on the downhills. And when Kai first started riding with me a couple years ago on these really long uh, gravel bike rides, I noticed that he would tuck in behind me. And then at the end of the ride, he would uh, pull out around me and then beat me. Well, he's been resting the whole time that we've, that we've been riding and making me eat the wind. And I, uh, on purpose, when I ride with him, don't tell him, but, but on purpose, I let him escape off the front. And then it forces him to eat the wind more often and not draft off of me the entire time. And I'm not drafting off of him either because he's, he's gone. So what I do is like, I let him get about 50 to 100 yards in front of me, but that's it. And that makes him spend time solo in the wind and working harder than um, just draft, because he'll just draft off me the entire time, a little punk. <laughs> that's okay. And uh, let's see, the route has got a lot of gravel and the really hilly parts. And so just thrilling downhills of almost out of control, high speed gravel where you're just hanging on for dear life and hoping that everything stays together. And on one downhill, oh, and big, you know, massive climbs of gravel just for this forever. And I just can't believe I used to do this route uh, on my converted bike that had road gearing and um, probably a 28 rear and a 40. 
four front and a 28 rear. I used to climb these hills. Oh my God, it's so painful. But that's before we bought myself a gravel bike. I was just doing, you know, turned an old bike into a gravel bike, an old commuter bike into a gravel bike. And then I, I was going downhill so fast one time I hit something and I'm not in the air bars when I'm going that downhill and that crazy. I hit something um, and it kind of went airborne for a second. <laughs> and then, yeah, so that was that. And the only time the kind I stopped was like pee breaks. And, you know, that's a, that's a truce. And we're both listening to music and podcasts and uh, we're using those shocks headphones so you can hear open ear. It's they're brilliant. And it was so cold that, and I knew it was going to be cold, that I barely needed any refill on water for five hours. And there was a place that was open that had a bathroom open and we got water from there. And I finished the ride feeling really great. And in fact, I wanted to go a little bit longer and Kai wanted to cut it short. He wanted, to, he wanted to end it right on time and just be done with it. And we were still finishing a loop that was going to make us take five hours and eight minutes or something like that. But he said, hey, we only got 10 minutes for five hours to be up. It was like four hours and 50 minutes. And we, if we turned around right where we were, if we took a hard right, then we'd be back at the house in about 10 minutes. And I was like, you sure? You don't want to do the rest of this dirt road that we could go down and then turn around and come back? And he said, no, come on, let's go back. And I was like, okay. But that's a really good sign that I was still ready to keep going and not done yet. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And then as uh, we started riding back, uh, there was a big sweeping turn that's a little nuts. And uh, I went into it real hot and uh, and in the arrow position, this pavement, and... Kai took that as a sign of danger to him and uh, I might uh, get back to the house before him. And so he just hit the afterburners and took off and he got about a, about a minute ahead of me and then stayed a minute ahead of me till about the very end. And then I caught up to about 30 seconds behind him and that's how we finished. And it was cool. So I'll be right back. Hold on. All right. Sorry. We're back. Like I always say, this I can tell this is a real triathletes podcast. <laughs> constant interruptions trying to get stuff done family came back and then took off again and emily's on the other side of the house trying to decorate christmas stuff and i'm trying to escape and get out here so i can record the rest of the show so yeah i did 350 calories and per hour i learned from the day before and you know reapplied on the second day i actually went faster on day two than on day one even though it was more elevation gain a little bit of that is working as a team with Kai, uh, but it, it was a lot windier and we didn't necessarily like draft off of each other like all that much. And oh yeah, I remember where I left off. I finished feeling so good that I was ready to keep going and Kai wanted it to be over. And I don't think Kai's, oh no, he's done a race that's so been really long, but uh, usually his training days end at four hours. I think five hours is the very far end of things and, and as they should be and for all of us for training that's one thing I, I coach in Ironman is go out and do a five-hour ride or 111 miles always save that extra mile for uh, for race day for fun and then uh, then try to run off the bike however long that takes that could take uh, that's a five-hour bike ride plus getting ready to go run yeah you're talking you're starting to get into six hours uh, anyway but that's rare that's like your last big workout before race day so you can test it out everything anyway i forgot to mention that after that after the ride the day before the five-hour ride that kind of wore me out the other thing that i did is i drank a real dr pepper i might have mentioned that in my recording drank a real dr pepper and that sugar kind of flushed things full and then yeah so i was biking 
with Kai and didn't feel like my legs were horribly hollow. Oh, uh, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about power meters and also, and I've had a power meter since 2007, but not on my gravel bike. I've got it on my tri bike and on my indoor trainer. Kai and I were talking briefly while riding together, and he said that Lachlan Morton, who's one of his heroes, and mine too, the guy's so cool, just rides. He doesn't have any kind of training plan. He just rides. <laughs> and he's a he's a world tour pro that's gone off into the off-road world. He's gone kind of nuts in a cool, cool way. And I said, Yeah, well, what he probably does is he probably rides really easy all the time. And when he wants to go hard, he takes the hills hard and builds in little intervals. You know, once you trained enough, um, I can definitely do this with swimming. I can, I know exactly what it takes to build up the right muscles with the right amount of burn and, and torture to be a fast swimmer. And, you know, once you become a world level or very experienced uh, pro or near pro or elite cyclist, if you pay attention to the training, you realize, and also if you do lots of weightlifting at some point in your life, you realize what makes you strong and what efforts it takes and what feelings in your body, you know, are tearing up your muscles and they're going to rebuild back stronger and stronger and stronger, right? So Lachlan Morton knows when he wants to do an interval day, he's feeling pretty strong and he's like, oh, you know, now would be a good time to uh, sharpen the blade with an interval or two or like intervals several today. Then he goes up the hills hard and then the rest of the time he rides really easy. And the serendipity of that story with Kai and then whatever podcast I was listening to and they were talking about power meters and just watts in general and watts per kilogram, I said, oh, Kai, there's something really important I need to tell you. We really should get you a power meter on your bike for Christmas. Somehow, we need to find you a power meter. And because when, because what a power meter does, uh, what it allows you to do on your outside rides, it teaches you how to ride up hills uh, softly so that you don't go too hard and, and then end up burning yourself out. And then you can do your long rides and stay in zone two-ish, you know, and be building endurance but stay under 200 watts. The thing about Sepkus and, you know, the pros are supposed to stay under 190, 200 watts the whole day. Well, a power meter, you, you, if without a power meter, you are going, if you've never ridden with a power meter or lots with a power meter, you are going uphill too hard and you don't know it. You really are. The, the amount that you have to scale back your effort to gently spin up a hill is unbelievable. And until you put a power meter on your bike and see it, for real, the numbers for real, that you're doing 250 watts, 300 watts when you climb up that hill and you do that over and over and over again and you're ruining your workout if it's supposed to be a workout where you're supposed to stand at 200. So what's so cool about a power meter is when your coach says you need to stay under so many watts, then you can ride and stay under so many watts because with, with power meter, it'll allow you to do that and it allows you to go easier up the hills and then you can ride longer without blowing up. And it's a godsend on triathlons, especially Ironmans, where you need to run off the bike and not blow up your legs. So I told Kai, I said, for me, the, one of the reasons, and this is true, it's not just me letting him eat the wind in, in front of me. I said, one of the reasons you're out climbing me, besides being better than me, but I'm just gently spinning up these hills because I know that from training that it is what it is. That's what you say when you climb up a hill and you got to you got to keep your power even so that you don't blow up. And however slow that is, is however slow that is. And sometimes it's embarrassingly slow. In fact, it should be embarrassingly slow. That's how you know that you're doing the, the, the correct amount of watts. I did Ironman Wisconsin and there's a big hill. You do, I think it's three laps and there's a big hill 
And my coach at the time told me to keep it under 270 watts, I think, climbing that hill. And at that time, I weighed 198, so 270 watts. I went to 192. Anyway, uh, 270 watts is really slow. And there's it's the hill that's got all the crowds. And people are cheering like, you can do it. Oh, my gosh, you got this. Don't give up. Because I was going so slow up this hill. But the thing is, is you only have so many matches to burn before it ruins your run. And in Ironman, it's three. You burn up three matches. And that means going really hard for too long. Then uh, that's burning a match. And then you start damaging your run. And that hill is a perfect place to burn a match. And on the first lap, people outclimbed me on that hill, and then I would eventually catch up with them again, eventually. But they definitely passed me going up the hill like I was standing still. And that's how you know that you're doing it right. <laughs> and then the second lap, I remember we kind of met at the top of the hill, the same kind of group of people that, that I was with that entire race well, until the last lap. And then uh, they still went faster than me up the hill, but then I caught them by the time I was downhill at on the other side. When I finished run, doing the run out thing up to full speed on the downhill, I'd catch them by then. When On the first time up the hill, it took me like miles to catch them later. But I caught them. And then the third time up the hill, if they were even still with me up that third climb, uh, by the time the climb was over, they were only halfway up the hill and I was at the top of the hill. This is the same people. I remember very distinctly the four, five, six, seven, eight people that were around me most of the ride. And I would, I outclimbed them and then over the top of the hill and then never saw them again the rest of the race because they burned themselves up where if they had just gone easy up these hills, then they would have uh, uh, been able to keep up with me the rest of the race. So I've ridden, you know, what is it? 15 years with a power meter. So I know like how to even out my effort up the hill and how to let people go because I know the race isn't won at the top of this hill. It's won at the end of the, the end of the, at the finish line. And so it's a good Zen practice, you know, to let your ego go and let people out climb you because you know that they're burning themselves up and you're just keeping it nice and even instead. And yeah, I would catch Kai on the downhill every single time. But anyway, the ride ended up being really great. We finished that and I didn't do much of recovery, anything. I had some cookies. And then also we went to um, a Korean barbecue as a dinner together. And it's a Korean barbecue. It's a Korean barbecue place that we went in one place and the prices were out of control and it was all just fried and cooked in your face and all smoky and there was terrible. And then I said, there's a nicer place that's half this price. Went around the corner and went to that place. And what's really cool is they set out appetizers that come with the meal and like a lot of Asian food that's authentic, tons of veggies. And so you're getting all this nutrition out of that and fiber and good stuff. And then I got the, bul I forgot, it's hard to say, bulgogi uh, bibimbap, <laughs> which is roast beef. So you got your iron in your, in your steak. And then it's more veggies like broccoli and whatever, onions and stuff. And then over rice. So I think I ate the whole freaking thing. And then my plan was, if I felt like it, to maybe run a little bit today on day four of all this. Because remember, I did 11 and a half miles on Thursday and then 78 miles and then 87 miles. It's funny that they're mirrored like that. And then, yeah, so what am I going to do today, right? I guess it'll depend on when I get up and I start running. And we'll see if I do that at all. And so I got up, uh, felt pretty good. 
started walking around. Legs really didn't feel all that sore. And also, by the way, my, my hamstring thing seems to have gone away. And then I got all my run stuff together. And as I'm putting, you know, when you're putting your run stuff together, you're kind of thinking like, what's the, how far should I go today based on feel? And because like Lachlan Morton, I trained myself. <laughs> and I'm like, well, hmm, I'll make enough fuel and water to do exactly what River and I did on that 11.4 mile route. That route was fun. It was inspiring because it was different. And it's the same uh, conditions outside. So he won't need any um, special needs. The dog won't. Well, he was fine the other day. If it's really cold, then which it was, then he can go without water for an hour and a half, however long it takes. And and he's just jogging and trying. We're stopping constantly so he can sniff stuff. And you can tell when a dog's done with running. If it's too hot, they they they'll lay down in like in the grass and try to stay cool. That's your runs over at that point. So he didn't do that at all last time. And so I was like, we'll do that. And that'll be eleven miles. And I can always cut it short. There's ways to cut it short. And if I start to hurt, and you always know when you start running, you're like, oh my god. And then I. Uh, and then if I want to go further, well, I, I didn't even think I was going to go further, actually. And so I get all my stuff together. And this time, instead of the big camelback with two liters, I was running with this kind of weird running bladder thing that I've got that's a liter and a half. And I was like, all right. And oh, a waste pack with some water in it. And I ran with a, a little bit of granola bars, two 100 calorie granola bars, along with my liquid fuel to see if that keeps kept me from needing to pee so much because you have solids and solids might absorb some water with them and whatever. And it helped a little bit and took off running with river and noticed immediately that even though my legs were a little bit sore and my hips were a little bit sore, that I actually felt fine. And I have like this checkpoint that's at the bottom of the hill of our street and then around the corner. And I always pause there for a second to let river pee in this one area. And I look at my time, my pace, and I was uh moving along faster than the other day and i was like oh interesting that, that'll predict my run whatever i get at the bottom of that that hill starting off my run is usually my run pace for the rest of the run it's funny and like i said before you know i try starting off running flat or downhill everywhere so this route that i took is really interesting uh, i paid attention to see when it stopped it was net downhill it had some level spots and little tiny little rise spots, but net downhill for two and a quarter miles before it leveled out. And that is just like the best warm up. Two and a quarter miles of just cruising along nice and easy, very, very gentle downhill and letting the legs yeah, start, you know, all the blood flowing, all the joints and everything is just fantastic. And I felt fantastic. And I was like, whoa, this, there's something going on here. This is really great. And so we finished that loop. And by the time I was finishing that loop, I felt better than the other day when I ran 11.4 miles. And I was like, dude, I'm going to do the full half marathon, <laughs> a full half. And I dropped off river and I ran an out and back to get to a 13.1. The feeling of finishing the a half marathon on my last day of all this stuff. I biked, I biked, 165 miles, a lot of it gravel. So if you took the gravel out and if it was all pavement, it'd be more like 190 probably miles is the, the speed I would have gone. If I was on a tri-bike, it would have been 200 miles. And if I'd been on a tri-bike and tri-gear like I usually do when I'm riding just pavement, yeah, I would have probably averaged about, or probably done about 200 miles. And then I, I ran like 25 miles in four days, all this. 
day after day after day without a break, all on the legs. And so the sensation I got when I was done, the feeling I got that I was able to do all this, uh, it's in the recording I'm about to play, but oh my gosh, just being on like cloud nine, that I feel like I'm finally back to being at Ironman level. And my run needs a little more work, but in general, that full endurance, that full package of being an ultra distance endurance athlete is all back in place. And now I just kind of tweak it here and there and maintain it. And wow, so cool. And honestly, you know, that's, I've realized in my many years on this planet that that's like what I really, really enjoy. I like being really good at something because it makes me feel good about myself and it helps me like carry myself a little bit better and have like confidence. And it's something that if it comes up, I don't bring it up to other people. I've learned that lesson. People at work do not care (laughs) and at parties do not care. If somebody else introduces you as like some kind of freak of nature, uh, ultra endurance athlete, that's great, but don't do it yourself. And then, uh, yeah, it just, it's just like you're, you're living your, your life at your full potential and being multi-sport, especially with the swimming built in. So it's working your upper body. You have relative to other people, especially as you get older and older and older, you have like unbelievable amount, amount of strength, amounts of strength and endurance to do just regular things that makes you appear kind of like a Superman in a weird way, uh, because, you can carry things, lift stuff up. Your body doesn't hurt. You've got this agility and, and uh, joint strength and, and all those kinds of really good stuff going on. And you carry yourself taller and you got good posture and you just like feel like you're operating on another level. But definitely in my case, it's not to be uh, better than anybody else. I don't really care about that. I'm trying to be the best that I can be. And then when I'm like that, then all kinds of great things start happening. Anyway, we're going to wrap up the show with just a few notes. So let's go ahead and do that. All right, that's it. We're at the end of the show. I'm going to stop recording here. And next episode will be the Marathon Mountain Bike Race in Fredericksburg, Texas, 42-something miles, maybe more. And if everything goes well, it'll be all about tapering for it, uh, executing fuel and hydration and what the race was like and see how well we do. And that'll be a really cool episode. I don't think we've done a full podcast where I've done a marathon mountain bike course and put it out there as a show. Even though I've done a bunch of them, the only one that's made the air is when I went and supported Kai's. So that'll be really cool. All right. Don't forget that I do coaching using training peaks. If you want to reach your goals and have one-on-one coaching with yours truly, I still have some spots available and we can make your dreams come true. Just send me an email at texafornia at gmail.com with coaching in the subject line and we will make your dreams come true. Everybody stay safe out there, work the uphills, cruise the downhills and keep the rubber side down, out.